Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 18th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. One facet of recent American history which I have not touched on in any of my studies are the Kennedy assassinations. Perhaps that is because such a great amount of revisionist work, both good and bad, had already been done in that field even before I could get a chance to study it. I've had no interest. But admittedly, I have not even taken the time to read the revisionist work that's out there to determine which revisionist work offers the soundest treatment of the matter. The Michael Collins Piper book, Final Judgment, is often applauded, and I think it certainly blames the right culprits for the assassination, but I have not even read that. Looking at the field of available work, there seems to be a flood of conflicting theories floating around revisionist circles, and perhaps the subject is best left to someone who can specialize in this one area. Thinking about tonight's program, this morning I read an article at the Independent Newspapers website in Britain about the 1992 Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act, which requires that the balance of unreleased papers related to the assassination and still held by United States government agencies be published by October 26, 2017. The article admits that most Americans believe Oswald was part of some sort of greater conspiracy, and even that the 1978 House of Representatives Select Committee on Assassinations had found that there was likely a second gunman who fired at the President's motorcade. But it still perpetuates the Oswald myth. Then it speculates about possible culprits, such as the Soviets, the Mafia, the Cubans, and even Lyndon Johnson. But it never mentions the Jews. Subsequently, it has been reported that Trump acted to hold back a few thousand documents, bending to CIA and FBI appeals to keep the records secret for reasons of national security. Come on, it's been 54 years. The drama may never end, and perhaps, perhaps it is all a charade. In a few days, it will have been 54 years since the assassination of President Kennedy. So tonight we shall hear from a friend who may not really be a specialist on this subject since he has had other work to do, but he has at least spent a great deal of time focusing his energies on studying the assassination of John Kennedy, and we are certain that he will offer us a balanced and thoughtful perspective. First, we shall play a video segment where Rich Della Rosa describes an early version of the famous Zapruder film, which may be shown to have been chopped up and edited. We have Donald Fox here with us tonight to discuss this and the Kennedy assassination, and perhaps after the clip, he will want to discuss it first. Here we go. The film started with the limousine on Houston Street as it approached the turn onto Elm Street. <clears throat> At that point, uh, 
William Greer, the driver of the limo, had difficulty maneuvering that 110-degree turn onto Elm Street. And it appeared that at first he wasn't targeting the car to go down Elm Street, but rather that he was targeting the service road in front of the Texas School Book Depository. And then he began to struggle as he realized that that wasn't where he was supposed to go, and he maneuvered to try and get the limousine back toward the center lane of Elm Street. And, and you can see that in this film. I mean, the entire turn is included in the film, whereas in the Expanse Zapruder film, even though Zapruder said once he started filming, he didn't stop until the, the limo had gone by, uh, the Expanse Zapruder film does not show the turn on to Elm Street. So the Greer um, maneuvers the heavy limousine in uh, onto Elm Street, trying as he was progressing down the street to get it to the center lane. And just about the time that that he got to the point where the gunshots occurred. There was a lot of activity on the right-hand side on the curb. The first thing he noticed was the guy that we call the Umbrella Man was furiously pumping the umbrella up and down. He wasn't just holding an open umbrella as we've been said by a number of other researchers. He was pumping the umbrella up and down. There was a lot of movement. <clears throat> the next thing was there was an individual that for many years we called the accomplice. And in later years, we called him the Cuban because he's a dark-complected man. He was wearing a cap. And in at least one still photograph, we can see that in his jacket, he had a radio device. <clears throat> I believe although I know a couple of researchers don't agree, but I believe that that gentleman was uh, Felipe Vidal Santiago. <clears throat> and he was seriously trying to get the attention of Greer. In fact, as the limo approached, that guy was in the street. He was standing in Elm Street. And there are a few still photographs where you can see that, in fact, he had stepped off the curb. And he was waving his arms. He, he finally signaled the driver with a closed fist. And this was clearly visible on this other film. And I'm told, I was in the Air Force, not the infantry, but I was, I've been told that the closed fist signal is the infantryman's signal to stop. And it was quite apparent that when Greer <clears throat> saw the guy, he did exactly that. He stopped right there. He stopped on a dime. He stopped with such suddenness that it jostled the occupants of the limo. I mean, they were all thrown forward a bit as the limo came to a complete stop. It did not just slow down, it stopped. At that 
moment, Greer turned around with the limo stopped and he faced JFK. And as he did, the choreography of this is astounding. He turned around and he stared JFK in the face and then you see JFK's head explodes from the uh, from the uh, tangible bullet. At that point, Greer turns back around and he proceeds to get out of Dealey Plaza. Although I, I got to say, there was no evidence in the film that he floored it. He just saw that JFK had been hit and he started the car. I don't know the specs on that car, how fast it can accelerate, but uh, he did not, you know, do a rabbit start out of Dealey Plaza. <clears throat> and he went forward, and the lead car, uh, quite simply, was in his way, so he swerved to the left, and he passed the lead car, and uh, proceeded to get the Stemmons freeway uh, to get the president to Parkland Hospital. Now, the events that I just described took place almost as if they were choreographed. And <clears throat> since I and a half dozen other people that I know have seen that film, when there's no question in our mind, as to whether the limo slowed or it stopped, it stopped. And I don't mean that it parked. I mean it stopped for possibly two to three seconds. But during that interval, JFK was hit by two headshots. One where you could noticeably uh, see his head move forward a bit. That would have been a shot to the rear of his head. I would suspect it was probably a low-velocity shot, just based on the movement of his head. And then, of course, the, the gory exploding shot from uh, the right front. And then uh, Greer got the, uh, <clears throat> the limo out of Dealey Plaza. So it looked all very choreographed to me. Um, but there's no question in, in our minds that the limo stopped. Now, there were a couple of frames in the Expanse of Hooter film. <clears throat> I don't remember which frame it was. I'm thinking it was 308, but I could be off. Where Dr. Roderick Ryan, who worked for Kodak and was a consultant in the motion picture industry, in fact, when he retired, he got a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Oscars. Um, he looked at the at the uh, neighboring frames, and he was able to determine that that the frames that showed the limo being blurred somewhat, the limo was in motion, and the one where uh, the limo was in sharp focus, it was in sharp focus because the limo was standing still. I mean, we have even more evidence than just the other film that the limo had stopped. Now, I have to say that one would conclude from, from what you see between the limo reacting to somebody signaling it to stop and it stopping and so forth, 
that there was Secret Service complicity in the assassination. Of course, we know that agents were called off the limo, and they did not take their their usual steps in protecting the car. <clears throat> but here we have uh, both Greer and Kellerman aware somebody was approaching the car, and at that point, I think that that I would have floored it at that point, not knowing who that individual was, but instead, Greer stopped the car, and uh, President Kennedy's head was blown off. Okay. Don Fox, are you with us? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on again, Bill. Uh, thank it's you great for, to be back on the show. Thank you for being here. How are we doing? Hey, pretty good. Okay, so what we just listened to was the uh, late, great uh, JFK researcher, Rich De La Rosa. And back in the 1970s, he was, and I, I forget what college he was at, but uh, he was on campus uh, somewhere, and he saw an unedited copy of the Zapruder film. And that apparently, and that's what he calls the other film, and that had been shown on several different college campuses back in the early to mid-70s. Real quick, this is a Bruder film, um, and, and I had asked you some months ago about that one scene where it looks like Kennedy's limo driver shot him in the head, right? And, and, and it's really convincing when you look at the YouTubes, and uh, they're always convincing, right? You could believe the earth is flat if you watch enough YouTubes. Well, well basically, that, that film you said... Um, you know people that have done extensive research on that film and that there are actually many frames missing from it. The Zapruder film as we know it isn't the real film, and De La Rosa is talking about the original film. Yes, he's talking about an unedited copy of the, of the film, yeah. And the the driver, the theory that, that Greer shot Kennedy is, is just flat ridiculous. Okay, there's absolutely no evidence to support that. And, and you know, as Fetzer likes to talk about... Um, Kennedy's brains were blown out to the rear left. So if Greer would have shot him, the, the brains would have went to the rear right. Right. So, so Kennedy was clearly shot from the right front, not by Greer. And at no point do you actually see a gun in Greer's hand. All Greer did was turn around to see what was happening, and when he saw Kennedy's head blown off, then he got out of there. He was, as, as De La Rosa was describing there, he, was, he got a signal to stop the limo, and then... The limo came to a halt, and then the fatal shot came from the storm drain at the bottom of the steps in Dealey Plaza there. That's interesting. There's another video. I, I don't think it's really neat for um, playing here, but it, it's a gentleman who actually did extensive research into that area and, and found that from the angle of the bullet, from the way it hit, Kennedy from from every possible perspective where the limousine was stationed when Kennedy was hit that it did indeed very possibly come from a storm drain and even that there was um was evidence of police reports at the other end of the storm drain of a man with a rifle by a river who who very plausibly could have taken that storm drain 
escape to to the river, right? I, I mean, this the storm brain the storm drain theory seems very feasible from that one video that I watched of that one research an older man who was a researcher into that area, uh, Tom Wilson or something like that. Yeah, yeah, the late Tom Wilson. Yeah, he was on the men who killed Kennedy back in 1988. Um, that's a very controversial series, but it did unearth some some excellent information and i've got the six dvd set there was another one that talked about lbj did it and that one's been banned they, they won't show that one at all um the history channel was showing the, the first the original six episodes of it but they won't show that i believe it was the seventh or eighth one that that fingers lbj for as having been behind the assassination and yeah, and you were you were talking about Tom Wilson, and yeah, when I saw that, Tom Wilson actually uh, scanned the Mormon photo, and then he built a mold from that of Kennedy's head wound, and he points out, you know, it was a it was a frangible or exploding bullet, and he, he even pinpoints where the two fragments of the bullet were, and he traces the shot back, and it was it came up, it hit Kennedy from a it was going at an upward angle, so he got hit from below. Right, there's no doubt that bullet was um, was a, a military type bullet that that fractures on impact and and it did massive amounts of damage. It wasn't a clear path through his skull, like a normal <laughs> rifle bullet would, would cause. No, no, and for anybody out there, okay, so the fatal headshot was clearly not from the school book depository building, and so that's so we have one shooter there, and then. Um, as I like to say, just just a no-brainer for people. If there's anybody left that actually believes the Warren Commission report, uh, all you have to do is, as as uh, the late Colonel Prouty talked about, was uh, James Tagg was a bystander down by the triple underpass, and he was hit by a chunk of cement because uh, the curb, a stray bullet hit the curb, and uh, a chunk of cement went up and hit James Tagg in the face. So if you trace that shot back from Tagg to the limo, it points uh, to a, a second-floor window in the Daltex building, which was owned by Jews, and it was it's it came from the uranium mining company. Again, another Jewish business. Okay, so where do we begin this evening? Okay, so I was going to say um, maybe we'll just start with my quick. Kind of my no-brainer. Oh, oh, actually, you know, before we even get into that, um, I thought we were going to maybe touch on the protocols real quick because some of this stuff, you know, as we discussed, was was right out of the protocols. Um, to kind of tie it back to CI. Um, well, well, definitely. I mean, this is um, all. All of our assassinations were probably conducted by the same gang of crooks and criminals. E- even Garfield, Lincoln, for one reason or another. That it all ties back to them. Yeah, I mean, the French Revolution was Jewish. Um, the the Russian Revolution, the, it wasn't Russian Revolution. It was the Bolshevik Revolution. That was all Jews. So they were through those governments. Um, they were all over Germany. They were all over France, England. Um, and as it says in, in Protocol 3 here, um, we support communism. The people, under our guidance, have annihilated the aristocracy who are their one and only defense and foster mother for the sake of their own advantage, which is inseparably bound up with the well-being of the people. Nowadays, with the destruction of the aristocracy, 
The people have fallen into the grips of merciless, money-grinding scoundrels who have laid a pitiless and cruel yoke upon the necks of the workers. And as they're talking about in the, in the protocols there, the internet, you know, the world jewelry was behind the destruction of our aristocracy. And, you know, a case could be made that the Kennedys were going to be the, the new, the new white aristocrats. And that was one possible angle. But I think, you know, that early on into the presidency, I don't think just being white was enough to get him done in. Um, so, I was going to say, let's just do a quick outline of, of Jewish involvement in the assassination. So here's my little quick no-brainer outline, and we'll, we'll dive deeper into, into some of this stuff. Um, okay, so the first point is, why was JFK in Dallas in the first place? Um, he was there to raise money uh, from wealthy Jewish Democratic contributors for the 64 election. And the second point here is, um, Chu Sam Bloom got the motorcade route changed, and that got Kennedy maneuvered into the kill zone on Elm Street. Um, Bloom also made sure that the motorcade route was published in the local newspapers. So by getting the, the route published in the papers, that gave a, a plausible explanation as to how Oswald knew the the president would be going right in front of his workplace. Right. Why would they do that? Why would they publish that route in the newspapers Un unless they wanted to make a scene? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. Yeah, it was bullshit. That that sort of thing normally isn't published. And then uh, uh, point three here is uh, Jew Abraham Zapruder filmed Kennedy's execution. Uh, Zapruder's family would later receive a massive payoff, courtesy of Jew Ken Feinberg, uh, he of nine eleven fame, who determined the fair market value of the film. Um, and as we just just discussed here, uh, point four. Shots were fired from the Jew-owned uranium mining company window in the Jew-owned Dell Text building. Uh, the uranium mining company was providing material to Israel's nuclear weapons program. Um, and then after Kennedy was shot and Oswald was arrested, uh, Jew Sam Bloom arranged for Oswald's public transfer from City Hall to the uh, county jail. Uh, he put heavy pressure on the mayor to, uh, to do it Sunday morning, and then... Uh, and, of course, after Kennedy was shot, uh, Lyndon Johnson was sworn in on Air Force One um, next to Jackie Kennedy, who was still covered in blood. And, yes, Lyndon Johnson was a crypto Jew. And then uh, point seven here is um, Jack Ruby um, was credited with the execution of uh, Oswald in the basement there on, on national TV, but... Recent research uh, by uh, Ralph Sincave, um, he's gone over all these photographs and films. Um, he makes a, a, a pretty solid case for somebody other than Jack Ruby being the, the shooter there. Uh, he, he's pointing the finger at FBI agent James Bookout. But, yeah, I'd like to see that because those pictures of Ruby with, with that one tall, light-skinned, um, well, they're all white, right? But this guy's wearing a, a, a light-colored suit suit that accentuates his fair complexion, and, and he looks pretty tall, and he's got right next to right next to Oswald, and he kind of has his arm raised as a reaction, and you see Ruby's back pointing and, and shooting, or, or you imagine that he's shooting at Oswald. That, that's pretty convincing, those photographs. 
it yeah but when you when you when you really look at him closely you can tell that the the person actually shooting Oswald was younger than Ruby uh, apparently shorter uh, different haircut uh, different neck different legs different arms it, it takes a lot of analysis and I, I would encourage people to go to uh, uh, Oswald in the doorway dot uh, which is Ralph Sinkay's blog and you can He's got the breakdowns of all this stuff there. And once that, when that, you know, after Oswald gets shot, there's this big, there's a lot of commotion. But after watching this video 10 or 15 times, it becomes apparent that that was also a choreographed scene where it, it looks like a rugby scrum where the guys go left, then they go right, then Ruby goes down, and then they put a bag over Ruby's head or what's purported to be Ruby, they drag him into a different room and close the door. So you never actually see Ruby's face before, right before, right after shooting Oswald. So that, that whole scene was carefully choreographed. Okay, that's interesting. I, I mean, I'd like to check it out. I really can't comment on it. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of ignorant of it. Um, I've seen the photographs, and, and that's about the extent of it. The still photographs oh, yeah. from that day. Yeah, we did a JFK show on that too. I used to be on the, uh, and I, I may be in the end in the future here if uh, time permits. The uh, the new JFK show, you can look that up on YouTube. Um, so okay, so Oswald was shot in the basement, and then uh, of course the uh, the Jewish media puts out the lone government gunman cover story, and we'll do. Maybe we can go into that now. The, uh, the lawyers for the Warren Commission that, that actually came up with the single bullet theory uh, were all Jewish. Um, it, was, it wasn't it was ballistics experts or, uh, um, you know, it wasn't uh, medical, it wasn't trained people. It was Jewish lawyers that came up with the single bullet theory. Um, Larry Rivera got his hands on a memo uh Dated January 28, 1964. Uh, subject, assassination of President Kennedy and the killing of Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, the commission's legal staff, Messrs. Joseph Ball, Jew, David Bellin, Jew, Melvin Eisenberg, Jew, hmm. and Norman Redlick, Jew, visually examined the Zapruder and Nick's movies from 10 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. on 127.64. Present were uh, Secret Service agent, John J. Howlett, who visually fixed the position of the shots in Dallas, and Secret Service Inspector Thomas Kelly. Special Agent Cheney uh, Felt of the FBI laboratory was available to answer questions concerning the frame count appearing in the Zapruder film. The results of the first day's examination of the staff is as follows. Um, shot one, the FBI and Secret Service approximations were accepted tentatively as being within several feet of each other behind the road sign moments before Kennedy's head emerged at the right edge of the sign viewed by Sapruder. Um, shot two. Uh, let's see. I gotta pull that up. Yeah, shot two. Approximately three quarters of a second separates the FBI and Secret Service's estimated positions. This represents a difference of about 13 frames. The staff is individually views concerning where Conley was shot. They are not sure where the governor was hit, feeling this may have been this, this may have occurred between frames 56 through 73. They desire to narrow this approximation down to 
minus their plus factor of about six feet in either direction. The staff is arranging to obtain a layman's report of the medical account describing the governor's wounds in order that the turning action of the governor is viewed in the movie can be used to more nearly fix the position he was in at the time the bullet struck him in the back. And then shot three, of course, was the, the fatal head wound. Um, the FBI and Secret Service approximations differ between one second, 18 frames, and about one and a half seconds, 29 frames. Staff members are endeavoring to pinpoint the third shot, frame 89 on the parkway. The next film of the third shot clearly locates the pruder across the roadway. An approximation which occurs 1.2 seconds before the FBI's approximation is being considered as a tentative location for the shot, for shot three as reenacted on the scale model again with a minus or plus factor of one-third of a second in either direction. So in this staff meeting, that was where the single bullet theory was born. Wow. And and Congress itself had had um had shown that to be unlikely in 1978. So so does I mean the Warren Commission was just designed to cover for something. I, I've never had a doubt about that. I just don't know what it's been designed to cover for. Of course. The, well, the, yeah. So there, there's different theories out there, you know, depending on who you listen to. That the CIA was behind it, or. Um, you know, and specifically in the CIA, that would be uh, Alan Dulles is typically a guy that gets mentioned, or it was the mafia, or it was the anti-Castro Cubans, or obviously, okay, if it was the mob, if it was the Italian Italian mafia, why would four Jewish lawyers come up with a cover story for it? Yeah, well, the Italian mafia was hardly Italian anyway. So yeah, it was. It was yeah. The, yeah. Upon further review, it was all Jewish. There were there were some lower level people that were Italian, but it was it was run by Meyer Lansky and and several other crypto Jews and conversos. Yeah, and if, if Lyndon Johnson in and of himself was the mastermind and carried out the assassination, um, well, he's been dead for fifty years yet, or not quite fifty. He's been dead for forty some years, and why would why would the cover up continue if it was just him behind it? So to me, it's pretty obvious that this was world jewelry was was behind the hit, and plenty of those folks are still with us. Now, now, real quick, the breakdown: Kennedy was shot twice, and and the governor of Texas was shot once in the back. Yeah, but Kennedy was yeah. shot in the front of the head. So, so where did these three shots come from? One came the the one shot that hit Kennedy in the front of the head came from. The storm sore came from the the, the storm yep. drain. Yeah, Kennedy was actually hit three times. Oh, um, three he times. Was hit. Yeah, the first shot was to the throat, and that went through the windshield. So most of us speculate that shot came from somewhere down by the triple underpass. And then Kennedy was also shot in the back, and that bullet, that's the one they give the single bullet theory credit to, but it, the bullet actually didn't even penetrate Kennedy's body. And that appears to have come from the Daltex building. And then, of course, the fatal headshot came from the storm sewer. And I believe Ken, or Conley's wounds came from the, the Dallas County Records building. And researchers found empty shell casings on the roof of that building back in the 1970s. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Fetzer thinks there was at least six shooters and... Nine to twelve shots at minimum. 
Well, well, if there's a conspiracy to kill somebody w with a rifle, it, it it makes sense to have as many shooters as you can station or position, right? Yeah, you, you, yeah. If you're going to do something like this, Kennedy cannot be allowed to escape alive. Right. So you have to have you can't have just, you can't have it all riding on one guy. Um, now, obviously, they had one guy in the primo position, but there's even been speculation that there were other teams farther down the street if that's what it would have taken but you know that's you know we can't really prove that one way or the other because they weren't really needed so well there's all sorts of information in the protocols about the willingness of, of their authors to um to engineer the elections where, where only people that can be compromised can can get into office now now kennedy there were a lot of sex scandals um, revolving around him, they must have wanted to get rid of him fast, or they could have just brought up some of those scandals. They could have just pulled a, a Marilyn Monroe out of the closet. I'm sure there were probably a lot of them, and 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 and, and discredited him and got him out of office in at, after 1964. They must have wanted to get rid of him quickly to assassinate him. Yeah, and yeah, so what was the real motivation? Um, so that that leads us down the. Uh, oh, okay. One more one more point here in my my quick outline. Um, well, there's actually a couple. So it's okay. So we got this, we got through the single bullet theory and where that came from. Um, just to finish up on the outline here. So Clay Shaw was the only person ever prosecuted for JFK's murder. Um, Shaw's handler was Jew Lewis M. Bloomfield. And Bloomfield was the front man for Jewish oligarch uh, Edgar Bronfman. Um, and that's basically, just in a quick nutshell, the Permindex connection. Um, Israel's illicit nuclear weapons program blossomed under LBJ's administration. And the USS Liberty incident, um, that's a direct result of LBJ taking office. Um, LBJ and Israel conspired to attack the defenseless U.S. spy ship uh, USS Liberty. Uh, the plan was to blame the attack on Egypt and then nuke Cairo. Um, well, well, so LBJ's at LBJ's presidency, the, the civil rights movement kicked into high gear. Um, yet you had the Great Society, but which was like a huge transfer of wealth from the white American middle class to to. Um, Negroes and Mexicans and all of these beasts. That is that the Immigration Act of 1968 was passed during LBJ's presidency. Um, Vietnam went into high gear with the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Uh, I mean, Lyndon Johnson was probably what one of the worst presidents for white Americans that ever existed. Yes, yeah, we were. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going to wind all of this up with was the. Well, well, we'll tie it back to, to Johnson at the end here again. Um, but, you know, I was going to maybe get back on. So you know, why why do a public execution of JFK? Why not? Like Nixon, they wanted to get rid of him. So they, they just did Watergate and got him impeached. Um, Nixon was having problems with, with the Jews, um, but they didn't kill him. So why kill Kennedy? What why Why have a public execution of a U.S. president? Well, and mm -hmm. and Nixon's another one that they they must have had some dirt on. I, I mean, I don't know, but that that seems to go against the um, 
to, to go against the plan laid out in the protocols that Nixon, that they didn't really dig anything up from his past to discredit him, that they just engineered Watergate. I really believe that Watergate was engineered to discredit Nixon purposely. I, I'm sure it was. And, and the only two people in the Nixon administration that weren't marred by Watergate of, of his close advisors were Kissinger and Alexander Haig, I believe. And, and they both went on to, um, to be subversive influences in future presidencies. Well, yeah, Kissinger was actually booted out of the Kennedy White House. But he made a comeback um, in the Nixon administration, and he was, he's been there ever since. Um, that's a guy you just can't get rid of. Um, and he won't die. He's like 300 years old. <laughs> I know. He, he's, he must be a vampire. Um, <laughs> but so LBJ, um, I believe he was a crypto Jew. Um, I found an article back, um, uh, oh, Jesus, a few, four years ago I found an article and uh, from Morris Smith of Five Towns Jewish News. And he talked about how... Um, Johnson had done a lot uh, of work in Palestine. Um, serving as a young congressman in 38 and 39, Johnson arranged for visas to be supplied to Jews in Warsaw, Poland, and oversaw the apparently illegal immigration of hundreds of Jews through the port of Galveston, Texas. Um, research into Johnson's personal history indicates that he inherited his concern for the Jewish people from his family. His aunt, Jesse Johnson Hatcher, a major influence on LBJ, was a member of the Zionist Organization of America. And according to uh, Gomelak, I think that was a historian, Aunt Jesse had nurtured LBJ's commitment to befriending Jews for over 50 years. Um, as a young boy, London watched his politically active grandfather, Big Sam, and father, Little Sam, seek clemency for Leo Frank, the Jewish victim of a blood libel in Atlanta. Frank was lynched by a mob in 1915, and the Ku Klux Klan in Texas threatened to kill the Johnsons. The Johnsons later told friends that Lyndon's family hid in their cellar while his father and uncle stood guard with shotguns on their porch in case of KKK attacks. Johnson's speechwriter later stated, Johnson often cited Leo Frank's lynching as the source of his opposition to both anti-Semitism and isolationism. And according to historian James Smallwood, Congressman Johnson used legal and sometimes illegal methods to smuggle hundreds of Jews into Texas using Galveston as the entry port. Enough money could buy false passports and fake visas in Cuba, Mexico, and other Latin American countries. Johnson smuggled boatloads and plane loads of Jews into Texas. He hid them in the Texas National Youth Administration. Johnson saved at least four or five hundred Jews, possibly more. And soon after taking office in the aftermath of John F. Kennedy's assassination in 1963, Johnson told an Israeli diplomat, you have lost a very great friend, but you have found a better one. Just one month after succeeding Kennedy, LBJ attended the December 1963 dedication of the Agudas Akam Synagogue in Austin. Novi opened the ceremony saying to Johnson, we can't thank him enough for all the Jews he got out of Germany during the days of Hitler. Lady Bird would later describe the day, according to Gomelak. Person after person plucked at my sleeve and said, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. He helped me get out. Lady Bird elaborated, 
Jews have been woven into the warp and woof of all of Lyndon's years. And as we know, according to Jewish law, if a person's mother is Jewish, then that person is automatically Jewish, regardless of the father's ethnicity or religion. The facts indicate that both of Lyndon Johnson's great-grandparents on the maternal side were Jewish. There is little doubt that he was Jewish. Yeah, well, to us, he would be Jewish if, if one great-great-great-grandparent was a Jew on any side. Je Jewish is basically a, um, a, a heredited genetic disorder, and, and there's no way you could escape it if you have a, a Jewish ancestor. That's the way we should look at it. Yeah, and, uh, and just to maybe uh, to go over the USS Liberty a little bit here... Um, uh, so on June 8, 1967, under Johnson's orders, Israeli planes bombed the American spy ship USS Liberty off the coast of Egypt. 34 of the 294 criminal board were killed in the attack. If not for some ingenuity and dumb luck, the ship would have been sunk and the attack would have been blamed on Russia or Egypt. It appears the attack on the Liberty was going to be used to justify the nuclear bombing of Cairo, which may have led to World War III. Except that they got caught. Yeah, yeah, the ship didn't go down, and the bombing of Cairo was called off only three minutes before the nuclear bombs were, were to drop. And and Baines John, Lyndon Baines Johnson actually wanted the ship sunk. He, he wanted it sunk. He didn't want the, the incident reported. He didn't want the ship to survive. That's from all of the accounts I've seen. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and Johnson uh, was quoted as saying, you know, there was uh, Navy planes were going there to... Uh, to to save the liberty, and Johnson got on the horn and said, recall the wings. And then somebody was like, are you kidding? And he's like, recall the wings. I want that goddamn ship going to the bottom. But that was, that had nothing to do with the um, the liberty whatsoever. It had everything to do with, with, with the um, Israeli plan for conquest of the wider Middle East. Correct, yes. And the U.S. spy ship was just going to be sacrificed to expand Israel's borders. Right. Again, I'm reading this stuff from my 2013 article uh, uh, called, um, you might still be able to find this on the internet. My blog is kind of dark right now, but you can, it's the title of it is the JFK war, the disturbing case of Jim DiEugenio, LBJ and Israel, uh, Don Fox with Jim Fetzer. So it's, I, think you, I think you can still find that out there on the internet. It seems to me that since 1967, 1968, the, the focus uh, for the Israelis has shifted. It, it seems that they don't consider Egypt or Saudi Arabia a threat anymore. That perhaps they've been totally subverted from within, which is the plausible, the, the plausible idea in, in my mind. But they shifted north, and they're still in that, they're still carrying out the same policy today. They're still using the United States to incrementally implement that policy, and and that they're after Iraq and Syria now instead of Saudi Arabia and Egypt, and 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 um, Jordan. Well, I mean, the Iraq War was it the was it the behest of Israel? Um, Absolutely. Syria, I mean, all these wars. Have been Iran, I, I, they've been yeah. agitating for war with Iran forever. That now um, Russia has been a huge obstacle to that, so they're agitating for war with Russia. Yep. It doesn't end. No, it never ends. There'll never be peace until the Jews are eliminated. Yeah, well, we know that. 
we, we need to discuss the money aspect because so many people, so many of my own listeners, believe that John Kennedy was trying to get rid of the Federal Reserve. And, and I kind of believed that at one time, but after researching Kennedy's statements and comments and actions related to the Federal Reserve all day today, I can't believe that any longer. Uh, well, okay, so I, I was looking uh, in in final judgment um, for Michael Collins Piper. He did mention that that Joe Kennedy, uh, JFK's father, uh, had talked to one of his confidants. You know, it was in private, and he said that uh, they were going to go after the Rothschild-run Federal Reserve, but not during Kennedy's first term. So it wasn't going to happen. Until he got reelected, and then once Kennedy wasn't up for election anymore, uh, then he would have gone after it. Um, well, well, maybe that's a possibility, but but everything that I see in Kennedy's speeches and actions from 1947 until 1963, he was actually proud of the Federal Reserve. He thought it was a great idea. He was proud of the achievements of Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. And, and he expressed that pride consistently in his speeches as early as 1947 and as late as the 1960s. In 1962, there were um, several laws passed which actually expanded the power or expanded the Federal Reserve and and um, or or expanded it or extended offered extensions to its powers I should say and also raised the debt ceiling he, he raised the debt ceiling twice significantly from um by by several billion dollars from March and July in 1962, it, it went from $298 billion to $305 billion just that summer, spring and summer, from March to July. So, so it seems to me that, that, um, that Kennedy, his actions through, through his first term were in favor of the Federal Reserve. Uh, a lot of people point to this executive order number 11,110. All that does, and, and I, I read the executive order in several copies of it, posted on different websites, basically say the same thing. This is from the, the, the actual official Kennedy Library website, and I've also read it at the um, University of California, Santa Barbara's website. But I'll read the, the, the um, description of that executive order from the from the Kennedy Library website. On June 4, 1963, President Kennedy signed this virtually unknown presidential decree, which as an amendment to Executive Order 10289, which had been in effect for over 12 years since the Truman administration, delegated the authority to issue silver certificates, notes convertible to silver on demand, to the Treasury of the Secretary. It was an authority he had, but he only delegated it to the Secretary of the Treasury. Some conspiracy theorists, and Jim Mars was foremost among these, believe this executive order was the cause of President Kennedy's assassination. But I don't believe that, because the... the um, the silver it, it only transfers 
the authority. It delegates the authority to issue these certificates from one arm of the presidency to, to another arm of the executive of the executive branch. It doesn't really change anything that hadn't already been done and and was ongoing for many years. But what really discredits the silver certificate theory, in my opinion, is the Silver Purchase Repeal Act of June of 1963. In 1963, John F. Kennedy signed this act, Public Law 88-36, he, he, he signed it June 4th, 1963, only seven months, seven and a half months before his assassination. is five and a half months, I'm sorry. This bill repeals the Silver Purchase Act of 1964, Section 4 of the Act of July 6th, 1939, and the Act of July 31st, 1946, which required the Treasury Department to purchase newly mined domestic silver at... 90 and a half cents an ounce and authorize the department to sell at the same price. <clears throat> Continues the requirement, the act continued the requirement that the treasury must keep a silver reserve to match outstanding silver certificates, that's it, and must supply silver in exchange for silver certificates on the holder's demand. So it's not creating new certificates, it's actually not allowing the Treasury Department to issue new certificates because it repealed the Silver Purchase Act. So it's shrinking the government's ability to to issue silver certificates. And it says that the Act authorizes the issuance of $1 and $2 Federal Reserve notes, Federal Reserve notes, to meet the needs of business and the public. And it requires that the Secretary of Treasury not dispose of any free silver unless the market price of the silver exceeds its monetary value of a dollar, not 29 plus an ounce, except that any free silver could be sold to other departments and agencies of the government or used for the coinage of standard silver coin, silver dollars and subsidiary silver coins. And the Act repealed the tax on transfers of silver bullion after the date of enactment. That act basically shrunk the silver certificate creation and and circulation it didn't increase it at all yeah correct um yeah first uh yeah you're right about the money the federal reserve and the silver uh, so let, let's touch on the federal reserve question here real quick um this is from page 100 of the uh final judgment ebook uh, michael collins piper um this section is called the money monopoly uh, there is no question, however, but that JFK, once firmly established in the presidency, fully intended to move against the Federal Reserve money monopoly. In fact, during a, his private meeting with DeWest Hooker, described earlier in these pages, JFK's father, Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy, assured Hooker that an ultimate long-term aim of the Kennedy dynasty would be the destruction of what the senior Kennedy described as, quote, the Rothschild-dominated Federal Reserve. Uh, this alone could have assured Kennedy's removal from the White House. However, there were other more immediate and ultimately dangerous conflicts at work between the forces of, of whose influence JFK sought to dismantle in the hard-driving new Kennedy administration. So the Federal Reserve question was certainly not a motivation in, in, in Kennedy's first term. And um, as far as the executive order 1-1 or 11,110, <clears throat> Yeah, here's what Piper said about that, and this is from page 447 of Final Judgment. Um, 
The fact is that an act of Congress passed on May 31st, 1878, declared that the U.S. Treasury is required to keep $322,539,016 in U.S. notes in circulation at all times. However, as the Treasury Department officer, uh, Rudy uh, Villarreal, then director of the Currency Operation Division at the Treasury Department, admitted to the spotlight in a 1982 interview, the Treasury itself was not issuing, issuing U.S. notes into circulation, even though it was mandated to do so by the longstanding congressional legislation. He said that the U.S. notes were put in a so-called issue vault, but as the spotlight comment, commented, it would appear that by some sort of semantic wizardry, the bureaucrats consider these locked-up notes to qualify as circulating currency. In fact, it does appear that the last time the U.S. notes were introduced into the economy was during the JFK administration, but to repeat, it was done not by a special executive order issued by the president that it is so often cited by those who say the Federal Reserve killed JFK. Instead, the issuance of the U.S. notes during the Kennedy era were done in pursuance of a law already on the books. Those who cite the, an executive order by JFK that, in fact, refers to silver certificates are making a big mistake and, unintentionally or not, doing a disservice to the research and the JFK assassination conspiracy. I cannot overemphasize this fact. And that was Michael Collins Piper, and I, I believe he was right on the money with that. Well, well, to me, the bottom line is that the Federal Reserve was not an issue in Kennedy's first term. I don't think it could have been a motivation to have him killed. What, whatever he had planned for a second term, um, his actions in in the first term didn't reveal those plans. Or, or did correct? Yeah, yeah, I I would concur with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I mean, maybe I, I know Joe Kennedy hated the Jews, but. Again, you know, like when a guy first gets into office, is he going to have enough wherewithal to take on the Federal Reserve? You know, probably not, because I think they wanted to get him reelected before they were going to make a move on international Jewish bankers. Well, I, I think that's a theory based on what one statement of hearsay. I, I, I don't yeah, know if it can yeah, be proven. Yeah, but yeah, that so yeah. In, in any event, whether that's true or not, it, it, the Federal Reserve question can't really be a motivation for killing Kennedy. No, not when he was um, expanding and extending the Federal Reserve through throughout his the, the middle of his first administration from, from what I've seen in the legislation. Yeah, so if, if it's not the money, if, if it wasn't the Federal Reserve or it wasn't the silver certificate, so what was the motivation to take out Kennedy? Um, and Here's here's an here's an interesting passage. I, I thought uh, not a lot of people talk about. Again, from Final Judgment. Um, here's Piper quote: uh, Israel, of course, saw the emergence of another independent Arab republic. Um, this was uh, Kennedy. Just to backtrack, Kennedy uh, in, in his first term in the Senate in 1957 spoke about the need uh, for Algeria to gain its independence. And uh, Piper goes on to say that the emergence of another independent Arab republic as a threat to its security, and anyone favoring Algerian independence was thus advocating a policy deemed threatening to Israel's survival. Some of Kennedy's critics said that the speech was a political move and that he chose the topic of Algerian independence as the subject of his first major foreign policy address because there was neither a French vote nor an Algerian vote to contend with in his home state of Massachusetts or in the nation as a whole. Um, while the later, latter observation is correct, of course, 
The fact is that there was one particularly powerful American voting bloc and source of financial contributions that did take note of Kennedy's support for the Algerian Arab independence, a powerful American lobby for Israel. And as we shall see in the end, it may have been JFK's initiative on the Algerian question that in fact played a major part in shaping the entirety of the conspiracy that ended his life in Dallas on November 22, 1963. Um, so, yeah, I don't think Algeria in and of itself was a was a uh, motivation to take him out, but it did get him on the uh, radar screen of our good friends over in Tel Aviv. Um, so I think we're getting closer to a motivation for taking out Kennedy. Um, so what, what, what really would cement it? So for me, it, it's the question of the, the illicit Israeli nuclear weapons program. And uh, Kennedy confronted Ben-Gurion over Demona. So here's a letter from Kennedy to David Ben-Gurion. Um, Dear Mr. Prime Minister, I welcome your letter of May 12th and am giving it careful study. Meanwhile, I have received from Ambassador Barber a report of his conversation with you on May 14 regarding the arrangements for visiting the Demona nuclear reactor. I should like to add some personal comments on that subject. I am sure you will agree that there is no more urgent business for the whole world than the control of nuclear weapons. We both recognized this when we talked together two years ago, and I emphasized it again when I went, met with Mrs. Meyer just after Christmas. The dangers in the proliferation of national nuclear weapon systems are so obvious that I am sure I need not repeat them here. Uh, it is because of our preoccupation with this problem that my government has sought to arrange with you for periodic visits to Demona. When we spoke together in May 1961, you said that we might make whatever use we wished of the information resulting from the first visit of American scientists to Demona, and that you would agree to further visits by neutrals as well. I had assumed that from Mrs. Meyer's comments that there would be no problem between us on this. We are concerned with the disturbing effects on world stability which would accompany the development of a nuclear weapons capability by Israel. I cannot imagine that the Arabs would refrain from turning to the Soviet Union for assistance if Israel were to develop a nuclear weapons capability with all the consequences that this would hold. But the problem is much larger than the impact on the Middle East. Development of a nuclear weapons capability by Israel would almost certainly lead other larger countries that have so far refrained from such development to feel that they must follow suit. As I made it clear in my press conference of May 8, we have a deep commitment to the security of Israel. In addition, this country supports Israel in a wide variety of in other ways, which are well known to both of us. And then there's four and a half lines of text which were not declassified. Um, and Kennedy goes on to say that, I can well appreciate your concerns for the development of the UAR, but I see no present or imminent nuclear threat to Israel from there. I am assured that our intelligence on this question is good and that the Egyptians do not presently have any installations comparable to Demona, nor any facilities potentially capable of nuclear weapons production. But, of course, if you have information that would support a contrary conclusion, I should like to receive it from you through Ambassador Barber. We have the capacity to check it. I trust that this message will convey the sense of urgency and perspective in which I view your government's early assent to the proposal first put to you by Ambassador Barber on April 2nd. Sincerely, John F. Kennedy. 
Now, some of these documents, you sent me a link, and it's pretty interesting. So, some of these documents are in an archive at George Washington University, at the George Washington University website. I will, um, I will publish that with this, with, with this podcast this evening. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it goes on, um, my article from uh, 2013, uh, uh, political dissident uh, Mordecai Venunu. Uh, he had he came he made some waves in 2004 when he said that uh, Israel was behind the JFK assassination. Um, and this was from I believe the uh, was it the London Times he gave the interview to. Uh, I got the article from originally I got it from the Free Republic, but I think it's on Rents as well. Um, uh, comments by freed nuclear spy Mordecai Venunu that Israel was behind the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy failed to bring smiles to government officials Sunday. One would expect that such claims would portray Venunu as a man with a credibility problem, but as far as the defense establishment is concerned, the former nuclear technician still has secrets to reveal and a declared goal of ending Israel's nuclear program. He shouldn't be talking to the media and is actually barred from meeting with uh, foreigners. Nevertheless, the London-based uh, Al Hyatt published Sunday an interview that it claims it had with Venunu. According to the interview, which appeared in uh, its Arabic, Arabic supplement, Al-Wasit, Venunu said that, according to uh, near certain indications, Kennedy was assassinated due to pressure he had exerted on then-head of government David Ben-Gurion to shed light on Demona's nuclear reactor. And it's... Uh, that's quite the uh, the statement. So the, the Israelis tried to spin Benunu as being kind of a uh, a whack job, but he was a, a nuclear scientist that was building bombs. Um, so the man definitely had some inside info. Mordecai Benunu, also known as John Crossman, <laughs> is an Israeli former nuclear technician and peace activist. Revealed details of Israel's nuclear weapons program to the British press in 1986. Who knows where he is now? Hopefully dead. Just another Jew. But, but um, no, this is actually a pretty no, no, notorious case. He, he was, and, and, and with no repercussions, right? Because the media just doesn't beat the drum if it's not um, amenable to the Jews. That's the way it is. He made a little splash, it seems. Yeah, Venunu was an outspoken critic. He, had, uh, his original article was, uh, I think, to the London Times, where he he talked about back in 1985 that Israel was building nuclear weapons at Demona, and uh, for his efforts, he ended up spending 18 years, I think, most of it in solitary confinement um, in an Israeli prison. It's funny how the Jews blame all their problems on on, on racism. That this Venunu is supposedly a Sephardic Jew or a Mizrahi Jew, and and according to the Jerusalem Post, Venunu's anti-Ashkenazi feelings morphed into anti-Jewish and anti-Israeli feelings, and and he became the principal advocate for Arab students on campus, what where he had had um. Ben at Ben Gurion University. Wow. That they always look for the, the the race card, I guess, even when it's another Jew. 
<laughs> I know it's uh, it, you know just to, to just kind of stray off the thing for a minute, but m- remember all those uh, uh, phone threats to the all the synagogues and Jewish centers around the country. Yeah, they were yeah. It turn, turns out that a, a Jew in Israel was behind all of right. those. Right? Why wouldn't he be? Why, why wouldn't he be? Real Nazis don't have time for that crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have to work. <laughs> Yeah, this um, Negev Nuclear Research Center, this Venunu case is interesting. It it seems to um, certainly corroborate the idea that the Kennedy, Kennedy assassination was about um, Israel's nuclear weapons facility at Demona and, and what research or what um, manufacturing or whatever was going to be conducted there at the same time that Kennedy was... Um, Assassinated, he's having this exchange of letters with the the, the um, Israeli Prime Minister. I mean, this letter from the American Embassy about the Moner is the, in Kennedy's behalf is written July fifth, nineteen sixty three, where um, they were recommending that. United States officials visit this facility at Demona to basically monitor what is going on there because the Americans insisted that only um, peaceful, research for peaceful means be conducted there. So... Yeah, in reality, Demona was a, a plutonium processing facility, so they were separating out plutonium for bombs. And in order to produce plutonium... Uh, they were only going to get a certain quantity. It's not a very big reactor, and the Jews pushed it as hard as they could, and eventually Demona, uh, the reactor kind of got fried out. So it's just kind of sitting there useless in the desert now. Interesting. The info I have, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the David Ben-Gurion, when he... Soon after, he was the first prime minister of Israel, and, and soon after that, you know, I've read articles where he talked about the fact that he could not sleep at night knowing that Israel was surrounded by Arabs and they did not have nuclear weapons. So Ben-Gurion was doing everything in his ability to get Israeli nukes produced. A man that made his... Um that, that made his own career and his own name by his acts of terrorism, I believe, before um, before the Israeli state was recognized by the United Nations. Well, just to, to talk about the formation of Israel, I mean, it was it took two world wars and a bunch of terrorist incidents to get this country on the map, literally. Right. I mean, it's it's a Jewish terrorist state. It's a Jewish outlaw nuclear terrorist state. That's what Israel actually is. Right. Hitler said that if they got their own state in Palestine, it would only be a high school for crooks and criminals. And he was a thousand percent right on that. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, last summer I I, I had to kind of put the you know put the brakes on my public Kennedy research for a, a minute. Um, but at that around that time, I was working with uh, one of my fellow researchers, and we were. I wrote kind of the first. It was kind of like part two of one of my shows that went over Jewish role in the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution and um, other events. And then this was going to be. Uh, this person helped me out with part two of that. Um, so I'm just going to go over some of this article quick. Um, 
So therm thermonuclear weapons testing heated up uh, during the Eisenhower administration. Ike delivered his famous Adams for Peace speech on December 8, 1953, whereby he posited shared control of nuclear experiments supervised by the globalist UN. In regards to atomic weapons and material, Ike thought it best that it must be put in the hands of those who will know how to strip its military casing and adapt it to the arts of peace. So this was the Adams for Peace. Um, but those who were experts that were to handle, but but who, I'm sorry, but who were the, these experts that were to handle the atomic materials? Who, who would actually be in charge of this project? The Atomic Energy Commission was established in 1946 by President Truman with government-owned facilities, but with civilian input and oversight. Um, okay, and that brings us to Jewish financier Bernard Baruch became Truman's appointee to the uh, UNAEC, the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission, and also who was also the uh, editor of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, um, who were all Jews, which aimed for civilian control over atomic energy. Uh, Baruch used this new position to push for international corporate control of nuclear development by claiming it was the official proposal of the American government Yet, he presented his plan through intimidation and with threats of potential nuclear war if not adopted. Basically, buy our plan, go in, or get nuked. Um, Baruch was known for his money grab. Instead of willing his estate to his children, he sold the property to his daughter, which included a Negro slave house. Um, where's the white supremacy there? It was actually a Jew that owned the black slaves. <laughs> The Russians clearly saw through Baruch's ill-gotten plan of Jewish control and his obvious attempt at financial gain for only a select few of the Jewish hierarchy, all under the guise of American rule, and subsequently snubbed his plan. Baruch was stifled from that point forward, and the power stayed within the Atomic Energy Commission. Um, but even so, with Eisenhower willingly offering power back to the globalist interest in his Adams for Peace speech and invariably taking the control away from the U.S., more Jews were able to involve themselves in nuclear, the nuclear development process. Um, in 1955, Jewish power broker and special assistant to Eisenhower, and of course brother to David, Nelson Rockefeller became infatuated with nuclear power reactors, serving as the basis for the Atomic Marshall Plan. With this new aid program, Rockefeller's expansive plan offered research reactors to friendly countries and the declassifying of U.S. proprietary technical research and power reactor information while providing assurances on availability of enriched uranium. Uh, and it sounds like another swipe. Oh, and okay, so here's, here's a quote from David Rockefeller. Um, Some even believe that we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States. Characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I am proud of it. David Rockefeller, and who is, of course, Jewish. Um, which sounds like another swipe at the chance for that international globalist corporate control and big-time money snatch longed for by Bernard Baruch. David must have been proud of his older brother, Nelson. 
But Eisenhower seemed concerned that the U.S. would lose too much control by giving up all its technical achievements. He wanted to offer sufficient technological and material assistance to support foreign development and spur on his worldly agenda, but he remained guarded. The prospect of nuclear development, of which social and political problems could potentially arise, were too obvious to Ike. Too much risk. Uh, and Ken- Kennedy would eventually see this consequence firsthand. Uh, with Nelson Rockefeller's globalist nuclear plans falling short, Israel had to make a move directly. Um, in 1958, Israel secretly began working on Demona, its nuclear research facility. Well, right. Mm-hmm. Ad- Atoms for Peace um, caused nuclear reactors to be built in Iran, Israel, and Pakistan. Uh, I mean, all those wonderful Muslim countries, right? I-, I think it's funny, right? I think it's ironic. Go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Just just as an aside, I often, when I was a kid, I wondered, how did all these countries get nuclear technology? We gave it to them. Why not? Yeah. We always well, do it. We, the Jews, Jews. We didn't give it to them. But, yeah. Jews operating in our government just weaseled through. I, I mean, I don't know who is behind the actual legislation in in Adams for Peace, but the program was launched and and um, it it exported nuclear technology throughout the world. Uh, I mean, I have there there are people in in my group that don't even believe that nukes exist and and think that nuclear power plants um, don't really produce any energy. I, I mean, they're intelligent people. I, I can't. I can't naysay them. One of them's actually an engineer, but but I don't um, I I I I don't have enough knowledge to actually counter that because it's not my specialty. But even if everybody thinks that nuclear power plants work and and that nukes exist, that this um that this program did distribute the technology all over the world right under our noses in the 1950s, right? Correct. Yep. And I've done a lot of research in the nuke question, and nukes exist. I'll just say, I mean, if you think the Earth is flat, you probably think that nuclear weapons don't exist either. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories, and the most intelligent people get caught up in them. I'm not yeah, gonna... and I, I run into these guys. Like, there's a bunch of 9-11 truth people, so-called 9-11 truth, um, that, that say nuclear weapons don't exist. And, you know, I've done hours and hours and hours, you know, hundreds of hours, probably over a thousand hours of research on nuclear weapons. And, yeah, I'm I'm fully convinced they exist. And I, I've got emails from down low nuclear scientists at the Department of Energy that have confirmed all my stuff on 9-11 is right. So I will leave it at that. Um Okay, I mean, I don't know. I don't have the ability to to go out and test these things, right? I would like to. I'd go straight to Atlanta, believe me. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, to finish up on this, um, um, in declassified minutes from an Eisenhower presidential conference uh, dated December 9th, 1960, entitled Implications of the Acquisition by Israel of a Nuclear Weapons Capability, the Demona reactor was a topic discussed wherein CIA Director Alan Dulles, who was later on the Warren Commission, referred to the Israeli reactor as a plutonium production plant. Uh, the authors of the report and Dulles believed that, on the basis of all available evidence, that plutonium production for weapons is at least one major purpose of this effort. 
The surrounding secrecy in Demona's remote location was strong evidence of the military purposes. Um, the SNIE estimated that Israel will produce some weapons-grade plutonium in 63-64 and possibly as early as 1962. And while the plan to de-emphasize the production of a nuclear weapons arsenal by Israel was being contrived, Ben-Gurion was showing his hand to Kennedy. Um, oh, yeah, here, here's a here's a article of uh, from ben -Gurion, uh, on Ben-Gurion. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion feared for Israel's future and Israel's success in the 1956 Sinai campaign did nothing to ally those fears. In the late 1950s, Ben-Gurion told an aide, I could not sleep all night, not even for one second. I had one fear in my heart a combined attack by all Arab armies. In a letter to President John F. Kennedy dated June 24, 1962, Ben-Gurion drew a direct connection between the Holocaust and Israel's need for deterrent strength. He wrote, What was done to six million of our brethren 20 years ago could be done to two million Jews of Israel, of Israel if, God forbid, Israeli defense forces are defeated. Ben-Gurion was determined that Israel should have a nuclear option. <laughs> Only a nuclear weapon could counter the numerical superiority of the Arabs. Um, Kennedy was greatly concerned with Israel's obvious intentions with the nuclear reactor, and rightly so, and sent a telegram to Israeli uh, Prime Minister Ben-Gurion on May 18, 1963, re reiterating the seriousness of U.S. requests for open visits to Demona. Since 1961, the U.S. had requested visits but had not received an invitation. In his letter to Ben-Gurion, Kennedy uh, reminded the Prime Minister that the U.S. supports Israel in a wide variety of other ways, which are well known to both of us. And that's uh, part of the letter. So, uh, um, so, so, so Kennedy, there was, Kennedy was going back and forth with Ben-Gurion, yeah. Regardless of what we think of nuclear weapons, it's very clear that there is friction between Kennedy, the Kennedy administration, Kennedy himself, and, and the Jews in Israel over Demona. Yeah, I mean, there can't be any any doubt on that from from reasonably informed and intelligent people on this question. Uh, there's no doubt Kennedy was trying to prevent Israel from getting nuclear weapons. Um, and Kennedy was well aware that France had helped with the Demona plant construction and supplied Israel with uranium, but France started to restrict supplies, and without some sort of regulation of uranium sales and supplies, Israel could gain access to yellow cake sans restriction. Argentina was one possible source, uh, with Kennedy wanting more oversight on Demona. Any uranium purchasing restrictions could greatly stifle Israel's nuclear ambitions, which Kennedy rightly believed to be more than just a peaceful energy program. Which they were actually permitted. Kennedy just yeah. wanted to monitor it. And, and, and the, his contention with the Jews was that they didn't want him to monitor it. And, and that should be pretty clear from the, the actual historical documentation, which you yeah. just read a good piece of. That, that's... Um, that, that seems to me to be a, a more plausible immediate reason than the Federal Reserve thing. I, I mean, I, I just don't see the Federal Reserve thing, no, no matter what Joe Kennedy said about John Kennedy's second term, they didn't have to kill him to stop him from doing anything 
in, in his second term, they just needed to pull a few whores out of the closet and, and cause a sex scandal. Because, I, I mean, his victory in his first term was so slim over Richard Nixon, right? I, I mean, it was, it, it was really slim. It, it was like Chicago was the difference or something, right? Yeah, the, uh, the Chicago Democratic machine probably put him over the top. Yeah, so exactly. That, that's my point. Um, th- yeah, whether he was going to battle the Fed in the future or not, that was not an immediate need to get rid of a guy. No, the Jewish media could have just unseated him in 1964 very easily. Right, yeah. yeah, they didn't think they could, but yeah, but even he had, he had made no actual policy moves against the Federal Reserve. No, I had I, I shown I, I could read more laws. It, yeah. he, he did everything that, that was in favor of the Federal Reserve in, in 1962 and 63. Yeah, and, um, yeah, and as I was talking about earlier, uh, at least one shot came from the, uh, that uranium uh, mining company window in the Dal Tex building. And uh, here's another uh, uh, section of, here's another excerpt from uh, Final Judgment. Um, quote, that an assassin quite probably fired on JFK from the Dal Tex building is most relevant in the context of an Israeli connection. Co-owned by David Wiesblatt, a major financial broker, of the Israel Lobby's Anti-Defamation League, the Dal Tex building housed on different floors a number of firms that utilized the telephone number of Morty Friedman, an attorney, garment manufacturer, and activist in Jewish affairs. Since JFK was working to stop Israel's nuclear arms program, which received smuggled uranium from U.S. sources, it is notable that one Dal Tex firm linked to Friedman was the Dallas Uranium and Oil Company. It is also intriguing that one of Friedman's Dal Tex business partners was Abe Zapruder, the Jewish dress manufacturer who filmed the assassination and profited immensely. Today there are some who now believe that Zapruder had advanced knowledge of the assassination. But Kennedy saw through Ben-Gurion's hand rubbing and knew that Israel wanted nuclear weapons and thus a political power tool to hold over the head of any enemy, ensuring Israeli control in any future negotiations. And clearly Kennedy knew this to be true, yet Ben-Gurion seemed to lose his nerve battling Kennedy, and so hardliner Levi Eshkol was up next to bat and brought in as a replacement. So Ben-Gurion resigned largely over his tensions with Kennedy over the nuclear, uh, Israel's uh, nuclear weapons program. Abraham Zapruder was in an, a Ukrainian-born American clothing manufacturer. So it wasn't like the guy was a photographer or an amateur cinematographer that was um, that that would have made a habit of trying to film a, a presidential motorcade for for career reasons. You, you, you see what I'm getting at? He, he yeah. Was a, he he was a Jewish clothing manufacturer. Look at these connections he had though in the Dell Text Building. Morty Friedman, Uranium Mining Company. I mean, it's obvious he was he was in on some part of the plot, or they wouldn't have had him filming it. Well, well, right. It seems um, odd to me that a, a clothing manufacturer would have taken the time to get this expensive movie camera because it looks like a probably a pretty expensive camera for 1963, and and um, get it set up in time and and spend his whole day waiting to film this motorcade. Yeah, and the the story goes that. Uh, Zapruder actually had vertigo, and he had to have his secretary hold him up while the motorcade was going by. 
interesting. That's funny. Yeah. So is that the guy that you really want filming this thing? But that he was there because he was he was in the Jewish network. Um, okay, so to finish up our article here, uh, but Kennedy stood strong, and more fervent correspondence was sent between the two conflicting parties. The Jews claimed Kennedy would renege on promises to protect Israel and viewed Kennedy's position as an unveiled threat and even more worrisome to the Jews, an ultimatum to withhold aid. Um, <laughs> the Jews did not want to lose their shekels. Um, yet Kennedy's stance was more measured. The statement was factual. Um, the visits would be imperative to confirm that Israel was not making nuclear weapons and would be in accord with international standards, thereby resolving all doubts as to the peaceful intent of the Demona project. Um, Eshkol and his fellow tribesmen apparently felt otherwise, and uh, you know a lot of us believe that the wheels were set in motion and President John F. Kennedy was murdered and calculated in cold blood in Dallas, Texas, on November 22, 1963. God rest his soul. There are questions about, um, maybe it's not time to bring this up yet, there are questions about Woody Harrelson's father and, and um, Harry Connick Sr. in the Clay Shaw trial and, and Carlos Marcello, who was some sort of gangster in New Orleans. Um, Clay Shaw was tied in with the mob in New Orleans, supposedly. Or, I, I don't know if you have anything to say about any of those things. Uh, yeah, actually, um, we did a show... I've done a couple shows on uh, um, on the uh, on the permindex angle. Uh, let me see here. Uh, and of course, I don't have that right in front of me just a second. But uh, yeah, um, so yeah, Clay Shaw was was part of the the New Orleans milieu. There's, there's kind of most researchers or people that study the case. You know, you kind of have your Dallas people, and then you have your New Orleans people. And Clay Shaw was part of the New Orleans angle of it. Um, and, well, how does New Orleans come into play? Well, uh, Oswald lived in New Orleans in the summer of 63, and, in fact, he was he was passing out leaflets for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, you know, in, in front of Guy Bannister's office uh, in the summer of 63. And he got into a scuffle with the... Uh, some Cuban dude, and he actually did a televised debate about Marxism. Um, you can look that, it, it's on YouTube, you can find that. Okay, interesting. What about Harry Connick Sr.? You know, he, that's he, a name I, I have not really heard. He, um, he was supposed to be the judge in a Clay Shaw trial. And, and Woody Harrelson's father was supposed to be one of the assassins, according to some people, or, or present. Uh, okay, no, Woody Harrelson's dad. Okay, he was. He uh, there's a lot of speculation that he was one of the tramps, um, and, and he was married to somebody named Oswald, which is kind of maybe circumstantial, but yeah. Uh, Woody Woody Harrelson's dad actually got he died in prison after uh, he was convicted of shooting a federal judge. Shouldn't be a crime. I'm just speculating. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, is maybe as disappointed in the judicial system as we get at times. We can't be. Right. Good. Yeah. 
Okay, I just had to raise these questions just because people sure, have been sure. um, bantering in a chat. Maybe you could add to their understanding or not. It, it's um, I, I noticed probably fifty. That that's what I said at the beginning of this program was that that there were just so many theories, so many conspiracy theories that are repeated all the time, and and it's hard to wade through them all to see what what has merit and what doesn't. Yeah. Um. Let's uh let's talk about Clay Shaw for just a minute here. Um, um so yeah, here, here's an interesting angle. Uh, uh, Clay Shaw and Perm Index. So the prosecution of Clay Shaw. Um, so I found an article uh, uh, called, um, or was it a PDF? I think it was a PDF, uh, page 46 from the PDF, uh, Opium Lords, Israel, the Golden Triangle, and the Kennedy Assassination by Salvador Astucia. Um, and he said, uh, in 1967, New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison prosecuted New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw for conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. Garrison suggested in his book On the Trail of the Assassins that Shaw received instructions from Louis M. Bloomfield. In addition, Garrison discovered that Shaw and Bloomfield were board members of two trade organizations, Permindex and Centro Mondial Commercial, both expelled from Italy in 1962 for subversive intelligence activity. Uh, Clay Shaw was a tall, distinguished man with silver hair and a polished manner. Uh, born in Kentwood, Louisiana on March 17, 1913. Uh, during the 1930s, he worked in New York City as an executive for Western Union Telegraph Company and later as an advertising public relations consultant. Uh, by 1963, Shaw had become a wealthy, a wealthy uh, real estate developer in New Orleans. He was director of the International House, uh, the World Trade Center, a Nonprofit association fostering the development of international trade, tourism, and cultural exchange. Uh, researcher Jim Mars wrote in his renowned book on the Kennedy assassination crossfire that the following description of Shaw's military background. Uh, by 1941, Shaw was with the U.S. Army, and while his official biography states that he was simply an aide de camp to General Charles O. Thrasher, Shaw later admitted he was working for the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, as a liaison officer to the headquarters of Winston Churchill. It's here that Shaw may have become entangled in the murky world of intelligence. Although there is precious little reliable information on exactly what Shaw's wartime experiences included, he did retire from the U.S. Army in 1946 as a major, and uh, he was later made a colonel uh, with the Bronze Star, uh, the Legion of Merit, France's uh, Croix de Guerre, and Belgium's Order of the Crown. It is significant that Shaw received France's Croix de Guerre while serving as a colonel in the U.S. Army in the 1940s. Uh, so there is strong circumstantial evidence that Shaw may have also served as a colonel in the French espionage organization. Uh, service uh, documentation exterior at de contra-espionage, or the S-D-E-C-E. And pardon my French. Under the aliases of a Colonel Rene Bertrand and Colonel Beaumont. So Shaw had aliases, and it, it's, it seems like he was working for French intelligence. Um, Jim Garrison proved that Clay Shaw often used aliases Clay Bertrand or Clem Bertrand. Uh, Danish journalist Henrik Kruger wrote in his 1976 book, The Great Heroin Coup, that a Colonel Rene Bertrand 
alias Colonel Beaumont, worked for the SDECE in the 1940s. According to Kruger, Colonel Bertrand used his influence in 1949 to get French gangster Joe Atia's prison sentence reduced from life to four years. Atia had been convicted in France for illegal possession of weapons and involvement in the death murder of another gangster, uh, Perot Lefaux. Atia had saved Colonel Bertrand's life during World War II and evidently asked Bertrand to return the favor by getting his sentence reduced. So, given that Clay Shaw was a colonel in the U.S. Army in the late 1940s, had admitted to working in the OSS, and given that he was awarded France's Croix de Guerre, and given that Shaw resided in New Orleans, which has a strong French heritage, and given Shaw's known propensity to use aliases, it's possible that French SDECE officer, Colonel René Bertrand, alias Beaumont, was actually Colonel Clay Shaw. This missing link about Shaw's background connects the dots to many of Jim Garrison's discovery about Shaw's past, his links to international espionage, and his involvement in the assassination of President Kennedy. In addition, Henrik Kruger wrote that Colonel Bertrand, alias Beaumont, is one of the names most associated with SDECE espionage involving assassination, kidnapping, and other notorious scandals. Um, so what was Permindex? It was a Mossad trading and money laundering venture operating in conjunction with the, liar, the Meyer Lansky Organized Crime Syndicate. And Clay Shaw, a longtime CIA asset, serving on the Permindex board, was a prime player in the New Orleans phase of the JFK assassination conspiracy. Therein lies, quite simply, uh, lies the uh, mystery behind the JFK assassination. Um, it explains why Garrison's investigation of Clay, saw, Clay Shaw, a, a director of Permindex, had to be scuttled. Not only had Garrison stumbled upon a definitive CIA link, he also had inadvertently discovered that the Israel connection. But at the time, Garrison himself never even suspected how deeply the Permindex nexus went. Garrison only went to the tip of the iceberg. He just couldn't dig deeply enough or didn't have the materials available, I gather. Yeah, I mean, and once once wind of shot of uh, Garrison's investigation got around, he he encountered heavy resistance. His office was infiltrated, bugged, um, people were intimidated. NBC News was doing hit pieces on him. Um, yeah, Jim Garrison really ran into the buzzsaw, you know. And there was no alternative media or internet in 1967. <laughs> story out you know you had to go through the there was three networks and then the, the local newspapers and that was it garrison says shall use the alias clay bertrand among the new orleans gay society so bertrand was evidently possibly corrupted in other ways or clay shaw that yeah if, if, you, if you've seen the movie jfk no i haven't i don't i, I haven't seen a movie in I don't know how many years, 30, 26, 26 years. Well, that is kind of what got me down this whole road to start with. Um, I saw the movie back in February of 92. And in that movie, Clay Shaw is portrayed as a homosexual. And he had a lot of boyfriends down there in the French Quarter. Yeah, that's even what I, I just looked it up real quick on Wikipedia just to get the background on Clay Shaw. And, and, I mean, not everything in Wikipedia is a lie. They usually leave stuff out, and that's how they lie. But, but um, 
yeah, even they intoned that he was that that he was um, a sodomite. So that that's pretty funny. Jim Garrison was interviewed by Playboy magazine evidently in 1967. Yeah, he was also on the Tonight Show with uh, Johnny Carson. And if you had any respect for Johnny Carson, you won't have any after you see that interview. That's also available on YouTube. Uh, I haven't seen it in maybe a year or two, but the last time I checked, it was still up there. Interesting. Yeah, Carson was all over Jim Garrison. I wonder why. Why Carson? Well, apparently he must have been one of their stooges. I mean, he he made a lot of money doing the late night TV show. So you thing. think he was just trying to make Jim Garrison look stupid? Yeah, yeah. He okay. was trying to discredit him, yeah. Interesting. I'll have to check that out maybe one day. Probably not today. <laughs> There's so much stuff to look at. Just today, I, I must have read for six hours to get a background on, on the... Um, on, on Kennedy and the Federal Reserve and what laws were passed during 62 and 63 because it, it's um, the most popular theory in CI circles is the money angle. Uh, I mean, we know that the um, the Jews would protect that their rule over the currency at any cost, e- even to go to war. And we've had many of our great wars based on that the um, the fact that certain nations did not have a central banking system, uh, I really believe that the American Civil War was was um, it began when when Andrew Jackson threw threw the Jews out of the out, threw the bank out right he, he he threw the Jews out of the U.S. Treasury, and and um, that angle always made the most sense to me until today when I actually looked at what the relationship was with Kennedy and the Federal Reserve through these years that the nuclear angle even though I, I, I some men that I love and respect don't believe that nuclear weapons exist it, it makes a lot more sense in um, looking at the actual documentation and, and hearing what you have repeated from that documentation and, and knowing that that was going on in, in over two years, immediately before Kennedy was assassinated, right up to the assassination, that makes a lot more sense to me. So that that's all I can really say about that at, at this point. Yeah, and you know, from a CI perspective, um, of course, we see that uh, yeah, Jews were heavily involved in, in the over in the in the destruction that you know the, the public execution of JFK and uh, you know so we see that you know Satan was let out of the pit and circa French Revolution or you know maybe slightly before that you know it took the Jews 150 years to get emancipated in Europe but once they got fully emancipated then things started happening you know the French Revolution the Bolshevik Revolution. Judea declares war on Germany, World War One, World War Two, you know all that, all that business. Wars. It's been endless wars since the Jews have ascended. And Catherine Austin Fitz, who's a wonderful researcher, um, she used to be in, in the HUD administration during Bush One. Um, she was in HUD, and she talks about the central banking warfare model of society. So it's basically a private central bank. And it uses the army to enforce its its monetary policies. Well, well, right. That's a pattern you could see all the way back to um, 
the the when when the Jews enlisted Cromwell and and his army, right? <laughs> yeah, that's been going so on for five hundred years. <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing, yeah. And then again, like we see, so Jew Lyndon Johnson takes over after Kennedy's dead. Doesn't even wait for the body to cool off before he gets sworn in, and. You know, technically, he, he didn't even have to have the swearing-in ceremony. He just would have been president. Uh, but he wanted to do that to rub Jackie's nose in it. And uh, so he takes over, and then what do we get? Like you said, we got the we got the Civil Rights Act, and then we got Hart Cellar in 1965, which ended up opening, the as Jacob Javits wanted, to open the gates and... The floodgates opened and the invasion started. Oh right, so, I, I, I remember um, the first fruits of, of of the Civil Rights Act where I was growing up in New Jersey was a flood of Indians and Pakistanis and and other assorted sand niggers and and, it, and all these weird people in what wearing their um, living room drapes for clothing and and their dark skin and these dots on their heads and it's like, Mommy, where the hell did these come from? That that was our expression. So really from from you know, the way we the way we see it here is that's where Gog and Magog really started, was with Hart Seller. Well well in America, right? I mean that's the floodgates that the the, yep. the the big push for racial integration started in the sixties and, and the Immigration Act and forced busing and and I remember the busing riots in in Boston and certain towns in Pennsylvania that had forced busing and there was a heavy reaction to it by, by citizens who were beat down um yeah it was um that was the early 70s it it was crazy i i remember the riots in 67 in Jersey City the negro riots and in 68 in Newark I saw them tear up the public library, burn a school down that was a few blocks from my house, from where I lived at the time. Number 11 school on Bergen Avenue in Jersey City. The niggers burned that down. They destroyed the library. It, it, it's, um, well, well that's, that, those experiences made me what I am today. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and back in the 70s, I grew up, in suburban Minneapolis, and I went to a. My dad moved out of Minneapolis, um, even though we didn't have much money. He wanted to get out to the suburbs where it was white, and we went to Lakeville, which was about ninety nine percent white when I was going there. But then, you know, as the late seventies hit and the early eighties, we started seeing more Asians popping up, and. Um, it's like, well, we went to Vietnam to kill all these people, but now they're coming here to live, and then they're not paying taxes for seven years. You know, it, it made you wonder what was going on. Well, it was the diversity forced upon us by the Jews. It was hard seller. So that's where the flood really started. And then, yeah, like you, you talked about the... the, the um, I'm, I'm not you know, sure the, that... Um, a second Kennedy, I mean, Johnson, maybe he, I don't know, maybe he was in on it. I don't know. I doubt it. Maybe he was indebted to them. I don't know. But in, in reality, if he was if he was a crypto Jew, which he certainly seems to have been from the records I've seen, 
that then um he was just fulfilling his nat- natural role. He was doing what Jews do. Yeah, uh, Phil Nelson wrote a book called Lyndon Johnson, the Mastermind of the JFK Assassination. And there's a lot of there's a lot of people that uh, think he was totally behind it. Um, um, I don't think he was. I, to me, I, I always thought Johnson role, Johnson's role was uh, um, maybe like the quarterback. You know, he didn't own the team. You know, he didn't he didn't even coach the team. But he was the guy on the field that they had running stuff on the ground. Well, well, right. But to do that, he didn't even really have to know about the assassination ahead of time. And he, it's his natural uh, role as vice president. Well, there's a lot of speculation that, you know, that, uh, you know, Fetzer talks about this, that there was a, uh, the night before the assassination, there was a, uh, there was a meeting and Johnson went into a boardroom with a bunch of heavy hitters and he came out and he, he talked to his mistress and he said that after tomorrow he wasn't going to have to put up with those goddamn Kennedy boys anymore. And Johnson himself was, was facing indictment. On the very day of uh, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, for uh, the Billy Solestis scandal, and that likely would have been the end of his political career. If and if not, he he may have been looking at some jail time actually. So no one gained more personally from the JFK assassination than Lyndon Johnson. Who was behind um, the Billy Solestis? I, I mean, from from the prosecutorial viewpoint. Oh, I'd have to go back and look that up. I, I remember hearing about that, but I remember, let's see, what was that? Let's see, London. Let's see. That looks like a local Texas case. That's Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, there was, it, it, well, Johnson was, oh, was totally, okay. he was a Pres- very corrupt individual. I'm sorry. In in 1960, this is Wikipedia again, right? It's the fastest response. And yep. and, and, and I hate Wikipedia, and, and I know they're biased. Uh, about many things. In, in 1962, after information came to light, Estes had paid off four agricultural officials for grain storage contracts. President John F. Kennedy ordered the Justice Department and FBI to open investigations into Estes's activities and determine if Secretary of Agriculture Orville L. Freeman had also been compromised, what well, like Johnson had been, right? So that's what was going on there. Freeman was cleared, the Secretary of Agriculture. Congress conducted hearings on Estes's business dealings, including some that led to Vice President Johnson, a longtime associate of Estes. So there you have it. Estes was ultimately tried and convicted, and I guess Johnson skated because... He was the president. <laughs> yeah, had had Johnson not been, um, had he not ascended to the presidency, he was most definitely looking at a stint in the who's go. Interesting. It, it's Wikipedia has a paragraph or two here on on allegations linking Johnson to the assassination of Kennedy and others. But but um, yeah. Would uh, I mean that would probably be enough to put Johnson in a position where he had a reason to participate in a, in a conspiracy or, or he had um, 
hard feelings towards the Kennedys, evidently, right, for that reason. Yeah, he hated the Kennedys. He hated Bobby. He hated he hated them both, and uh, on a personal level. But in fact, uh, he he wormed his way onto the ticket. Um, he was not the original pick for uh, Stuart Symington was supposed to be JFK's running mate, and uh, Johnson went in there and. Bobby had kind of offered it to him as a because they, they didn't think he was going to actually accept it, but then he did, and uh, Bobby was going to ask him to reconsider that. But then Johnson told him that if they took him off the ticket, that he was going to uh, make sure that none of his legislation ever passed through the Senate. He was going to subvert his whole agenda. So Kennedy kind of put up with him being on the ticket, but with this whole. Uh, Estes scandal. There was a lot of talk in Dallas that day that Johnson was not going to be on the ticket for 64. Okay. So his, his political future was in grave doubt on that afternoon. Interesting. Yeah, and, and one last thing on the, on the uranium mining company, um, it appears that George H.W. Bush was seen, there's photographs of him very near that, that the Dell Text building on, on November 22nd, 1963. And that it appears he was supervising the hit team in the Dell Text building. I, I, I actually, are those photographs really conclusive? I, I did see one photograph, um, today of somebody claiming that was a young George, George H.W. Bush. Senior Bush. Yeah, my my guys that analyze the photos are are convinced, and I'm I'm not going to pretend to be the world's greatest photographic analysis guy, but people that like Ralph Sinke and people I know they they they're convinced that 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 is Bush. Yeah, it, it seems that the photographs that you want to be clear are the murkiest, and and the ones <laughs> that that's the way it works, right? I mean, it's 50 million photographs that are perfectly clear and. That then you come come out and and see a few that you really need to be clear, and they're they're really not. That that's the impression I got anyway. I did see see only one image though that was purported to be him. There must be more if there was one. Yeah, and uh, uh, yeah, Colonel Prouty, uh he thinks that uh, General Ed Lansdale was involved in the assassination as well. Because Prouty was actually, Prouty was sent to the South Pole on a mission uh, a couple of weeks before the assassination. So on his way back, he had stopped in New Zealand and he had picked up the Christ, Christchurch Star and it, it had announced that Oswald had done it before he was even charged with the, with the crime in Dallas. And he was convinced that his boss, Ed Lansdale, General Ed Lansdale, was was involved in the assassination. Um, Richard Nixon was in was in Dallas uh, that weekend. Um, and Yitzhak Rabin was also in Dallas that day. Later went on to become uh, uh, head of the Israeli Defense Force and then prime minister, two-time prime minister of Israel. 
Yeah, and just another loose end on that front. So speaking of Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby was, you know, he shot Oswald on Sunday, supposedly, but he was at the Friday night press conference with Oswald, and he was seen there, and he was asking questions. They were they they asked Jack what he was doing there, and he said he was serving as a translator for Israeli reporters. So I'm convinced that Jack Ruby was a Mossad operative as well. I mean, why else? Why would Israeli reporters seek out a strip club owner to serve as a translator? <laughs> Depends on what they want to translate. <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty I mean, wild. Yeah, how many strip club owners are translators for foreign reporters? So, so then, how did Jack Ruby not? Well, okay, why did Jack Ruby not really shoot Oswald? What What would the motive be? Well. Okay, so there's some speculation on that. So the thought was that maybe at the time Jack was maybe getting a little older. Um, you know, in the you know in the in the 40s and 50s he was a tough guy, but by 63, you know, yeah, he did used to throw drunks out of the strip club himself. But I, I think maybe they thought maybe he was just a little past his prime, and maybe they wanted to get a younger man to actually shoot Oswald. I guess that's my speculation on it. Did Ruby die that day? He did. He was supposedly shot and killed, right? Uh, Oswald died. Yeah. No, Jack Ruby. Ruby what, what? When did Ruby die? Ruby died in '67. He died of cancer. Oh, so he died in prison. Yeah, yeah. He died of a very fast-acting cancer. Okay, special cancer. I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was '67, right? I, I'm confused. Yeah. I, I, I thought yeah, maybe I believe Ruby it was January '67 when Ruby died. Yeah. I thought Ru maybe Ruby got shot and killed the day that he killed Oswald. But now I do kind of. Re I told you I didn't study this case, right? Now I do kind yeah. of remember him going to prison. But did he ever? Did he ever deny shooting Oswald? Uh no, he never did. He, what he said was that there was forces bigger than him that were behind the assassination, and that he could not tell the truth while he was in Dallas. So. He begged the Warren Commission to take him to Washington, D.C. so he could testify. But Earl Warren flatly refused, saying they couldn't take him to to Washington because they didn't have any power to protect him. Oh, that's bullshit. Like, they would care about that. <laughs> so they, they let Ruby uh, rot in jail. In fact, he died at Parkland Hospital, too. He never made it more than a few blocks away from Dealey Plaza. It's interesting. The the, um, the famous grassy knoll is in Dealey Plaza. Yes, yeah. So, okay, there's a lot of speculation that the fatal headshot came from behind the picket fence. But uh, Larry Rivera did a did a great breakdown on that. Um, and the angle of the shit, there's just no way that a shooter from there, you know, and and yeah, yes, the Zapruder film was altered, and there's there's a lot of proofs of that. There's a lot of missing frames and stuff, but where the car was at when Kennedy got hit, there's no way a guy from behind that fence could have actually hit him. So it was it, it, there's a lot of speculation that yeah, indeed a shot was fired from there, but it missed. I just had. <laughs> I just had to mention the grassy knoll once, right? Yeah, I guess you really can't do a Kennedy show without talking about the grassy knoll. I mean, no, you can't. No, I've kind of moved on from that. In fact, I, I read a, a 
Uh, I was reading an article from, from a JFK researcher, and he said, this must have come in four or five years ago, and I forget the guy's name now off the top of my head, but he says, it's like we all start out in Dealey Plaza, you know, trying to figure out where the shooters were and what kind of ammunition they used and, you know, who all was involved. And, you know, but eventually you kind of graduate from Dealey Plaza and you kind of move on to the bigger picture. So um, some of my research, you know, I, I've kind of just taken it for granted that, yeah, there was absolutely more than one shooter. You know, and I know most of the spots where the shots probably came from, but because the medical evidence was so botched and manipulated and basically most of a lot of it's an outright fraud you're never going to really know for sure where everybody was i mean we have some pretty good indications yeah there was shots from the deltex building yeah the fatal headshot did come from the storm sewer yes shots did come from the dallas county records building uh, we're pretty sure there was a shot from the triple underpass but there may have been more you know so you're, you're never really going to know where all the shots came from, how many shots were fired, um, and the exact location and the names of all the all the shooters. Well, well, Tom Wilson, I watched his video this afternoon, and he seemed pretty convincing. I, I do want you to tell me one thing, though. He, he made this model, this block. You would mention it before from from a, yeah. a photograph of the, the 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 injured Kennedy's skull and and or head and and um. This photograph is what photograph? Who took some woman took this photograph? What? Yeah, Mary Mormon. Yeah, it was, it's the Mary Mormon photograph. Okay, I, I heard it referred to as the Mormon photograph, like maybe there yeah. were some canvassers in the area. I, I'm joking, right? But that, no, I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about it. Mormon photograph, that's all I heard. Can you explain this, this photograph? Who was Mary Mormon? How did she get this photograph? Is it published? I'm sure it's published somewhere. Right? Oh, yeah. Mary Mormon photographs all over the place. Uh, okay, so she was just uh, just a person there to see the motorcade. And, and Jim Fetzer's done a lot of work on this, where Mary Mormon said that she had stepped out into the street to take the picture. And uh, the government version is, well, we had tighter security than that. Nobody could step out in the street. But... Fetzer and some other people actually went to Dealey Plaza and took exact measurements, and yes, indeed, the photo was taken from the street. So Mary Mormon took her photo. She was on not the grassy knoll side of the street, but the other side of the street, looking towards the grassy knoll, and she she took a picture of Kennedy just, you know, almost at the time the bullet was entering his head, you know, just a little bit after that. Oh, wow. And you see the head wound the back in the back of Kennedy's head. It was a fist-sized blowout. So from that photograph, there's no doubt that the bullet entered the front. Yeah. yeah. Which totally rules out the textbook building. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, <coughs> there's some speculation that the a shot may have come from there, but not, not from the sniper's nest end of the building, but from on the other end of the sixth floor and... You know, it's possible one of those shots hit Conley or Kennedy. Um, most of the people that study the case that, that I've listened to <clears throat> tend to think that Conley's wounds came from the uh, the Dallas County Records building, which was kind of across the street from the, the, the Texas School Book building. The Texas School Book building was across the street from the Grassy Knoll. 
Uh, no, it was it was just up the street, so it's it's on the same side of the street, oh, but okay. the street kind of curves there, um, and, and they they call it the triple underpass because Elm, Main, and uh, oh, I forget the other street, Con- yeah. Stemmons. Yeah, they all converge right there. See, I don't have a good picture of the um, the layout in my head either. I'm just terrible. <laughs> I'm just ignorant. Yeah, you can you can just Google Dealey Plaza map and uh, one will come up. Yeah, so the, so the um, the storm sewer and 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 the textbook building are in the same direction from Kennedy. Uh, okay, so the storm sewer is in front of Kennedy, and the Texas School Book building is behind him. But see, now that's what I originally thought. Okay. That, that's what I originally pictured. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, there's yeah. If you look at the grassy knoll, there's in back there's the picket fence and there's those trees and then there's there's that what they call the pergola and then there's the steps that come down and the storm drain is at the bottom of those steps. Okay, I, I don't think we have enough time left for me to to, to get this whole picture, and and um, I just don't. I'm sorry. I'm I'm looking at a map now. I see Dallas Holocaust Museum. Okay, the, the sixth <laughs> yeah. floor museum at Dilly Plaza. I gather that's the building where where, where the um, what where the school the te- the textbook company was, right? Otherwise, why would they have a sixth floor museum? Yeah, that's that's yeah, it's the sixth floor museum, and the, it's the former Texas School Book building. Yeah. And the motorcade's going down. Houston it, it, it's Street, going, Houston yeah, Street. It's going down. It's going down Houston. And then it makes a 110 degree turn onto Elm. Okay, in New York, that's and it's Houston. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and then and that turn is as Rich Delarosa was describing at the beginning of the show. It's a 110 degree turn, and the driver almost missed it. He he, there's a there's a little street that goes in front of the Texas School Book Building, and it's called the Elm Street Annex. It's not like a full street. Right, and that's where Greer apparently Greer thought he was supposed to drive down there, but then he realized at kind of the last second that was a dead end, and then he he turned, but the car actually, from what reports I've heard, it actually went up on the sidewalk, and then it then he he got the car back going again down towards the middle of the street, but it took him a minute. Okay, that's interesting. Nope. And now that violates every Secret Service protocol of protecting a president. Maybe you could send me a um, a link to a map of, um, to a, to a diagram or a map that I could include uh, this podcast. Yeah, here's here's one that. Yeah, I mean it don't have to be done now, but I'll post it tomorrow or. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'll get that over to you. Whatever. Yeah, there's. I'd like to see where the storm drain is, the storm sore. Just to, there's got to be illustrations out there that are already made. Oh right? yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't I, want I, you to I, have I, to draw one, right? <laughs> <laughs> now let me see here. Uh, see where it is. I can I can send one over to you here if you just hold on. Yeah, I mean I'll, I'll I'll publish it with the podcast. I'm going to publish the. Um, the the video clip that we had played earlier this evening that that spoke about the original Zapruder film and the Della Rosa video and and I'm going to post the Tom Wilson video with this program. I wish I could play it, but having watched it, 
um, playing it would do the listeners no service. They really have to see the images and the video along with it and, and in order to, to understand it well, and playing it just isn't going to make it. No, it, it's uh, the audio clip doesn't really do it justice. Right. Tom Wilson did did a lot of phenomenal work, and he he was concerned with the study of uh, uh, photonics, um, which you know, and I, I've read some about what he was doing, and I, I'm not really a, a great, like I said, a photographic expert, but from what I've read about people who described his work, he talked about like. And this kind of threw some people off where they thought he was crazy, but he said that like he could see around corners, i.e., he could determine what was going on from shadows and stuff. He was that he did that much study on light because he his job was to basically find imperfections in uh, steel, like sheets of steel. Okay. So he had a very trained eye for this sort of thing. Interesting. Maybe he could have figured out how those planes took the World Trade Center down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm well, kidding. and that's maybe maybe to kind of wrap up that that's been one of my uh, one of my main contentions is that uh, in fact here's here I found my here I can send this to you right now. Uh, uh, there's a direct historical path from uh, from. Yeah, you should have it now. I sent over a, a GIF. Um, there's a direct historical path from Dealey Plaza to 9-11. Well, well, I mean, it's all part of the same Jewish agenda to yeah. conquer the entire Middle East. They wanted to foment that war in, in Iraq. Yeah, so it's basically, like, like I've said, you know, the, the two pillars of 9-11 research are Jews and nukes. And really, if, if, if you really boil this all down to the lowest common denominator... You could say the same thing about the JFK assassination. Jews and nukes. Had Kennedy been successful and thwarted the Jews' plant, you know, ability to, to produce nuclear weapons, we would not have had 9-11. But because they got away with it there, um, we went on to pay the price more on September 11th, 2001. Not to mention all the shenanigans that had happened in between there. Okay, so the motorcade was supposed to go along that Elm Street, that curved part of Elm Street, and make the, the the sharp turn down South Houston Street. I see that now. Thank you. And and then go up Main Street, what, which is kind of like a convoluted route. Wow. Yeah, this is what I was talking about with Sam Bloom. The original route was he was going to go straight down the street and speak at the women's building. Um, but Sam Bloom in the Dallas... Jewish business community insisted that Kennedy speak at the trademark and that put him on this wacko route going around this corner at 110 degrees. Yeah, that's interesting. They could have just went straight. Okay. That's good to see, but I'll post it with um, I'll post it with, with, with the program this evening when I post the, pro, the podcast yeah. at Chris Tegenia. Yeah, it, it, if you look down there a little bit, you can see those steps that I was talking about. Yeah, I'll study the image later. I, I, I yeah. mean, we're in the middle of the program. I don't want to do it now. I, I yeah. just had to take a quick a quick look to to garner the path. That's all, and and actually where the um 
the school book building was in relation to the famous grassy knoll. Ah. Okay. Yep. I'm, I'm and, sure. Yeah, so, and you can see the, the Dallas County Records building and um, the Dal Text building. Um, yeah, right. They're all identified in there. It, it's a little yep. busy, but it, it's busy. It's detailed, but they're all identified. This and is, it, yeah, the, the image I sent you, it's, it's the kind of the plat map. This is kind of like the, it's kind of like the, kind of the holy grail of the Dealey Plaza maps. This is the actual county, um, somebody overdrew the, the stuff, but it's the actual survey of, of Dealey Plaza. Larry Rivera based this map on all of his blender work. You can you can catch that if you go to uh, if you go to YouTube, just punch in the new JFK show. Um, you'll see some shows that I've done, and you'll see Gary King, Jim Fetzer, uh, Larry Rivera, Ralph Sinke. All these guys are doing great work in this in the JFK field. Wonderful. We'll check it out. And yeah, and check out Ralph's Ralph's blog, um, Oswald in the Doorway dot Speaking of Gary King, what's up with Nathan Lawrence? Uh, okay, yeah, I got a I got a phone call on that. Apparently, they're not doing the Battle of New Orleans radio show anymore. Oh, I know that they got thrown off. Yeah, they they quit paying for it. They had to pay to be on there. Um, so they're they're now doing podcasts, I guess. So, well, that's probably better for them anyway. But. Yeah, that's that was my thought. I'm like, why, you know, why pay to be on an AM radio station that not that many people listen to? So. Okay, thank you for being here. And, and yeah, it was, uh, uh, it, it was good uh, talking with you about uh, the assassination of our thirty-fifth president. Yeah, it's it's um, I don't know. We can never do enough in two hours, but I don't think that was our purpose here. To to um, was to just give a, a general overview rather than go into every specific detail. It, it's how many programs, how many podcasts have you done on on the Kennedy assassination? It's it's well over a hundred, isn't it? Oh yeah, the new JFK show. I haven't been on every one of them, but yeah, there's yeah, I think there's 150 of them. And Jim did. We did a bunch of shows before this. Uh, if you go to RadioFetzer.blogspot.com, you can listen to shows going back eight nine years that we've been doing on JFK. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you could spend you could spend you know six hours just breaking down all the medical evidence. And one of the first books I read on this was uh, "Best Evidence" by David Lifton, and that that thing was massively thick. And uh, Lifton's big big thesis was that Kennedy's body was switched. So there, there's a whole there's a whole controversy about that. Was JFK's body actually switched out or was it on Air Force One? Did it go on Air Force Two? Why would that be a conspiracy? Why why I don't know, right? Well because there was they had to they had to alter his body uh to cover up shots from in front. Okay. I understand that. So can, can and, they, and then there was I mean can and, a good mortician take care of that? Uh no, they actually had to have Humes do it and I think the best Fetzer the best he could dig up on it was that it, it actually did go down at, at Walter Reed and that 
Commander Humes, who was supposed to be in charge of the autopsy, actually performed pre-autopsy surgery on Kennedy's head. And this is why Humes later went on to burn all of his autopsy notes that were drenched in blood. And come up with a whole um, bullshit story later on. And and yeah, and speaking of Tom Wilson, so he he took a look at some of those uh, autopsy photographs and um, he determined there to be just painted images on a photograph, just totally fake. So the medical evidence has been faked. Uh, the 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 Zapruder film has been faked. Uh, almost all the photographs that we've really looked at closely have been faked to, to some degree or other, touched up. Uh, the Alchin 6 photo, which Ralph and Larry have done a lot of work on, which, which if you look at it closely, these guys actually show Lee Oswald standing in the doorway of the school book depository building as the motorcade goes by. So Oswald was not on the sixth floor shooting anybody. In fact, I don't think any shots came out of the Texas School Book building. Yeah, I really always doubted the Oswald story, right? Even before I knew anything at all about the case, which I don't really know that much, but I've always doubted the Oswald story. It it never really made any sense how how he was able to do that and and get all those shots off and and from definitely different directions, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and you know, there's a whole, you could spend a whole bunch of time on, you know, the, the weapon that he, he allegedly used, which was bought from a mail order thing in Chicago. And there's a guy that did, I've listened to like a two hour show on just the money order and ordering that rifle. You know, the, the money order went through the federal reserve and it was all bullshit and it, it never cleared the fed. And, uh, so they, and it was a man liquor Carcano bolt action rifle. I mean, if you're going to shoot the president, are you going to use a bolt-action rifle that that takes, they say 2.3 seconds to reload it, but, right. I mean, if you're really trying to hit somebody, it's going to take longer than that, so. And and he's got um, three or four shots off in a lot less than six seconds. Yeah, so they're saying three shots in six seconds, which is, you know, with a bolt-action rifle is basically impossible. And, and as, as we all know, the fatal headshot came from in front. So, as you know, as it's been said, how can a man be shot from in front, from behind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I've always doubted the the, the um, single shooter Oswald story. So, so if I had to read, if I wanted to read, I'm probably not going to have the time. If I wanted to read one book on the Kennedy assassination and, and the, the, the best view of the, the best theory behind um, who performed it and how it was done. What Would it be the Lifton book or would it be the Piper book? Uh, I would probably go with, if you're going to go from the whodunit angle, Michael Collins Piper. Uh, David Lifton doesn't really get into who did it. He was more concerned with the fraud, the you know, the faking of the medical evidence. And he spent a lot of time on that. And Jim Fetzer has, has three books, um, Murder in Dealey Plaza, uh, The Great Zapruder Film Hoax, and Assassination Science. Those are all good places to start, too. And uh, 
Uh, the first book I bought on it was, uh, this is kind of more from a whodunit angle, was uh, uh, Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, JFK, the CIA, Vietnam, and the plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy. And that book really, you know, even outside of the Kennedy assassination context, that book really taught me how to look at the world, how this thing really runs. And he's also got another book called The Secret Team, which is kind of in the same vein. Okay, but who did he pin the assassination on? Prouty. What's that? Prouty? Yes. He he talks about, at the end of the book, he talks about the the high cabal being behind it. He he talks about, he doesn't really name names per se in that arena, because he he actually had security clearance and he was a black operator. Uh, He died, you know, coincidentally enough, he died in June of 2001. And he talked about there being a, a, a level of power, and he used Winston Churchill's term called the high cabal, that there's a level, there's a power structure above the visible national leaders. Yeah, the cabalists. Okay. Yep, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, further research on my end, like, you know, we talk, we know the Jews, but specifically who in there, and the best I can come up with would be Chabad Lubavitch. Is being at the top of the heap. Well, well, yeah. I mean that that that's the um, that group of Jews that go in and check on ev- every government leader once a year. I mean that's all they do is circulate the globe. That they visit the the Putin. They visit um, Obama or Trump. I'm sure they visited Trump already. I I, I haven't seen the pictures yet, but but um. Well, Trump went to Israel, so he might have met with him then. Yeah, all, all the Chabad Lubavitch does that. All they seem to do anyway, be, because they're in every executive office every year. Is just go around from place to place and make sure that everybody's doing what they've been told to do. That's what it seems to me. The whole Chabad Lubavitch thing is is pretty apparent. I mean, they visit practically every important government leader every year. So, so what do these guys do? What, what's their role? Well, well, they're being propped up by world Jewry to put on a show, a dog and pony show for the Jews, and 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 make sure that every world government is, every world leader is subservient to Jewry. That's what they're doing. <laughs> That's what it seems to me. It, it's like going to your Jew doctor every year. Well, here the Jew doctor comes to you. Yeah, they, yeah. If you if you run a national government, they'll make a house call. Yeah, right. They're making house calls exactly. <laughs> and and that's Chabad Lubavitch's role. That's the way I see it. it it's yeah. Like, you you talk about. I mean, people think well, the money men, but like like you were saying, it's it's probably the rabbis, and I, I think it's the Chabad Lubavitch rabbis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, the money men are, are um a, a huge part of it, but they're probably answering to the rabbis. I wouldn't doubt it. To, to me, these the, the rabbis are the glue that holds it all together. That they they're the transmitters of the protocols and and the executors executors of the protocols, the planning of protocols from generation to generation. Uh, I mean, they're controlling the bankers, keeping them in check. Uh, that that's my opinion. Is that Chabad Lubavitch probably is at the top of the heap? That those rabbis probably are at the top of the heap. Yeah, that's the, yeah. As far as my research goes, that's that's about the bottom of the rabbit hole. That's about as 
that's about the best I can narrow it down to. And and look at look at you know if you want to talk about Trump, well look at Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. They're Habad Lubavitch. Yeah, Trump is so compromised. You know, I I don't like to really brag, but it's fun. I, I was telling these white nationalists that Trump was there to make a fool out of them. I was telling them a year before he was elected, I was saying that Donald Trump exists to make white nationalists look stupid, and and that's exactly what happened. Well, he has done, there has been a slight improvement. I mean, the wall prototypes have been built. Okay, look, is Trump a savior? No, but can we get a few good things out of him? Yeah, I mean, if he builds that wall on the southern border, he's going to be one of the greatest U.S. presidents ever, and that's not saying a lot considering some of the people we've had in the Oval Office, you know, the you know, Eisenhower, I, I've heard he was Jewish. Well, he, he's not yep. going to send any of these hundred million biological time bombs back. Well, they're, uh, they are starting to ramp up deportations. Um, he's hired more judges and more more staff to start I'd be uh, doing immigration hearings. So, you know, I, you know, the guy's only been in not even a year yet. So, you know, I'm willing to cut him some yeah. slack. But, and, and, I mean, there's no question that he's surrounded by Jews. Right. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there's no question that, you know, Steve Mnuchin, Jared Kushner, I mean, there's just, you could go on and on with the names, you know, Ashkenazi Jews, you know. Well, we'll see what happens with the wall. It'll be interesting, but I kind of think it's going to be nothing. In, well, in the end. My, my perspective is that that is the start of the separating of the sheep from the goats. I think that started, and, and, and that Trump has, has helped that along by polarizing whites against one another. That, that, that's, and, and you have the, the, these um, cucked whites and, and all of these other races on one side of the fence, and, and the white nationalists are, get, are, are gaining more and more notoriety, I think, in the Trump years. And, and I think it, I hope it keeps going. That, that's separating the sheep and the goats, in, in my opinion. There's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not going to happen overnight. I mean, like, it's, you know, like in Revelation, it says, you know, the, you know, and after the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed from his prison. Well, it took 150 years for the Jews to become emancipated. Um, so how long is it going to take to separate the sheep from the goats? Yeah, right. It could take a while. It, it's yeah, a long and, process, and, evidently. You know, and I was I was listening to Billy Roper's podcast uh, last week, and he was talking about, you know, he, Billy's big on balkanization, and he's, he's saying it's already started, and already more, more Negroes are moving to the southeast, you know, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, you know, they're getting swamped. And white people are moving to places like Arkansas and the Pacific Northwest. So it, it's starting to happen now kind of naturally. I think Billy's just full of wishful thinking. He, he might be, but there's at least a consciousness and now the, of, the balkanization idea is an old idea long before Billy he's just picked it up yeah. in other places he has yeah but 
Yeah. I, I Both mean, would that would account for the sheep and the goats becoming separated. I, I've been saying for years that that um, when Babylon falls, that people are going to have to get tribal very quickly, just in order to defend themselves. That that's they're going to have to learn to cling to people of their own kind, just in order to defend themselves. They're going to realize real quick what these other races are all about when the other races have the. Um, the, the shackles of law enforcement and and our justice system removed from them that they're just going to go um, go wild. The Negroes are going to go wild. Yeah, once the veneer of this tyranny is removed, it's going to get ugly really quick. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, 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 that's um, that, that's pretty common. It, it's just common sense that the um, other yeah, more. I, I mean, who wants to move to the Pacific Northwest? It's it's the most liberal place in the country. It's horrible. It, it's as well, bad as Minnesota. Well, I mean, once Babylon falls, how liberal is it going to be? Right, but right now, that the average white person in Washington State, it is totally engrossed in, in this diversity culture and, and in bed with these Orientals and, and these Negroes up there. And, and they're, they're the worst. They'll vote against you every time. They'll hang you before they'll hang a, a bit before they'll build that wall. Well, yeah, in 2017, we'll see what happens when, when, when stuff starts going sideways, Is I guess would be my my yeah. take on that. Yeah, I don't believe the balkanization is going to happen until Babylon falls. And and that's we we might see um a a very slow process where more and more whites become awake and and want to be with other whites. I mean, I'm seeing that all the time. I have people ask me all the time where they should live, where they should move to. And and um it it's that the same sort of people rely on the system because there's the skills they have are, are tied into the system. I'm, I mean, when you're a p- computer programmer, where should you go? And if you're a computer programmer, the Pacific Northwest is a great place to find a job. So that's where you should go, right? I mean, that that's um, you know, we're still dependent on that system, and and we really can't really get off the grid. Most of us don't have skills, off the grid skills. We have to be tied to some metropolitan area for for our livelihood. That's the shape most people are in. Not everybody could be a a, a farmer or an over the road trucker. It it's just the way it is. It's um I know people that are engineers or nurses or, or whatever that that have to be on the grid somewhere in order to make their to feed their kids so that not all of the world's um, white nationalists are going to be able to move to Arkansas or the Pacific Northwest I mean the Ozarks are a great place don't get me wrong but it's it's not um, amenable to supporting a family always because it's it's pretty rural and and pretty remote from most um, most types of employment. That's just the way it is. 
Not everybody can do those things. When when the system falls, when things crumble, then they're going to have to um, get some skills real fast that that other than what they have, right? So that they could survive. They're going to have to develop some survival skills real quick. When when um, there's no more food in the supermarket, and and the 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 Negroes have taken over all the urban areas, right? I mean, there's a lot that can be... Well, we could talk forever about that. I don't think that tonight's the night. No, I, I, but, well, I, I think... Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, the system's going to fall, and I think we've covered a lot of ground here tonight. Um, hopefully some people uh, learn something on the JFK assassination. Yeah. Um, you know, who really runs the world? I mean, that's what... That's Prouty's big thing was. Who, you know, who had the motive... And who benefited, who has the power to cover it up? So that's the Prouty book is probably better than the Piper book or, or is good? or um, if, if you want to get the Jew angle, read Piper. Um, if you want to know how, how black ops work in the covert world, read the Prouty book. And, and then if, if you, you want to know the details of the cover up, you read the Tifton book, the Lifton book, I'm sorry. Uh, that, that's kind of the, the medical, um, that, that's the, it's, it's from 1980, so it, it's a little bit dated at this point. I read it back in 92. And, but it's a good place to start. You know, if you want to get a good, you know, if you don't have a medical background and you want to get, you know, you want to get up to speed on some of the, the medical evidence in the case, that's a good place to start. Okay. Okay, just so people hear that. Yeah, and Dave Lifton was one of my big heroes, but then I, I got it on an email with him a few years ago, and he said, if you think 9-11 was a conspiracy, you're nuts. So I don't have much respect for David Lifton these days. Wow. What a shame. Yeah. <laughs> if you think 9-11 wasn't a conspiracy, you're nuts. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I think I think we had a good show here, Bill, and it was uh, good talking to you. Okay, Don, thanks for being here, and 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 I appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate it. And praise Christ. We'll see you soon. Yep. Praise God, and um, we'll we'll talk to you next time, Bill. Good night.